Good morning. It was Sunday, December 11th. What a great song. You know, it's funny just looking at the lyrics here. How appropriate. So, okay, you get up every morning, your alarm clock's warning. Here we go. Okay, here we go. This, I think, applies to maybe too many folks on uh, FinTwit. If you ever get annoyed, look at me. I'm self-employed. I love to work at nothing all day. <laughs> if it were easy as fishing, you could be a musician. If it was easy as fishing, you could be a stock market speculator. Anyway, these are great lyrics. I got to tweet these out. All right, so here we are. Sunday the 11th. Um, this date in history, we got to get Roke in here. I'm going to get him, ask him to come and speak. So 1941, Hitler and Mussolini uh, declare war on the United States. 1961 uh, marked the first direct military involvement of the United States in Vietnam. And Roke, maybe you were at this game, or maybe your father was at this game. But in 1938, in the NFL championship of the Polo Grounds, the New York football giants beat the Green Bay Packers 23-17. to There was a record title game attendance of 48,120. So, John, I don't think – I never went to the Polo Grounds. I suspect you weren't old enough either to go to the Polo Grounds. But maybe you could chime in, if not, with some market observations, maybe what you know about the Polo Grounds from your father or from others. What a great field that was. All right, why are we doing this space? We did a couple spaces last week, normal spaces. We had a great space with Arjun Murdy. Uh, and then we had another great space with Michael Howe. One of the all-time best spaces ever with Michael. I urge everyone to go back and listen to that replay. It was great that he had some charts for us as well. Friday, I was triggered by the price action. I wasn't going to do a space. I'm doing a space this morning because I am triggered. And John, just so you, while you're warming it up, so you can throw in a couple comments here. I was so offended. John, you have spoken about the cost of pizza on Arthur Avenue and some of your missives. I was so triggered. People want to know the, 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 uh, the title for this room, where it came from. So I'm going out of town later this week. Yes, I'm going to take a vacation. And so, you know, I live in Westchester. And, and by the way, one of the things I want everyone in this room to chime in with, even those you haven't spoken up before, anyone who has an offensive an example of offensive predatory pricing behavior, that's what I should change name in this room to. I want to hear it. I want you to bring it. I was so offended. So, you know, we're supposed to go to JFK. It's a 45-minute ride. Figure, how much can it be? So, you know, we do Uber. Uber, they want, like, I don't know. It was $95 or something like that. And we're trying to figure out, doing the, doing the ARB, you know, not risk ARB or stat ARB, but do we park or drive ARB? By the way, you want to go park at LaGuardia? It's unbelievable. I'm going to, to, to JFK. I went to LaGuardia about a month ago. The daily parking rate, call me a cheapskate or wherever. I just find it, it's against my religion. And even though John is Catholic and I'm Jewish, it's against his religion too. It's against my religion to pay $75 a day for parking. So instead of a cheapskate, I go in the long-term parking lot at LaGuardia. It was $29. All right, fine. That's a win, $29. Compared to Boston, it was. We were more used to it. It was like $40. So anyway, I'm going to JFK. And the Uber, they wanted $95. I'm like, that's ridiculous. This is to go at 6 o'clock in the morning. So we go on Lyft. 
That's why you have to have competition. Lift is $68. I'm like, sold, sold to you. They're going to come at 5.45 a.m. on Thursday. So just there'll be no space at 5.45 a.m. on Thursday. $68. I'm happy it's $68. What is the world coming to? I'm happy it's only $68. Neely, you're going to have to speak up because it has to do with the consumer. All right, now we got to worry about coming back. I'm coming back on a Friday night, eight days later. Of course, you're gonna they're gonna sock it to you with surge pricing. 10 p.m. pickup, JFK. What do you think? I put it in an Uber. They want to look 90, 95 bucks going. They want 120 dollars coming back. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's gonna cost almost as much to take the limousine as it will for the plane ride. Like, what is going on here? So I said, enough, enough. Fair call limousine service. I'm a cheapskate. So first I go on Groupon. I get all confused. There's too much of this, too much of that. I'm in Westchester. They're giving me the price of rides to go to the Miami airport. or I don't care. I want here. So then I call up. I go a couple of the car ride services, some of the best known, presumably reasonably priced. 45-minute ride. You thought $120 was bad. $220. It's not a typo. 220. I called three places. They all collude. 208, 220, 208, 212. Someone's got Jerome Powell's number. They can tell me when these prices are going to go back down. Oh, by the way, my, my girlfriend says, oh, but you know the price of gasoline has gone down lately. See, I know. They're not cutting the price of the rides. This is just outrageous. And what people, and there's a serious point here. And that is everyone's so fixated on rate of change and blah, blah, blah. If someone tweeted out not too long ago and I recycled it, people live on price levels, not on rate of change. Specifically, as a great Vincent Delord said, and I urge you to please, please, please go listen to the space he did with us a month ago. I heard him again this past week at the Stonex conference. There's a shortage of people who stand on their feet for a living in this country. Those are the people who have bargaining power. As we discussed a week or two ago, BlackRock in the most recent update talked about how, you know, I think the second largest or one of the five largest employers in the country with like 625,000 employees. They had fired a whole bunch of people in the beginning of the pandemic that were making $12.50 an hour. They subsequently rehired them, I think, at $19 an hour. I think wage increases are like 8% this year. They're looking at 6 to 8% for next year. Again, I'm mentioning accuracy, not precision. And the point is, if, there, if, if you have a tight labor market and you've lost a lot of your purchasing power, it's time to play catch-up football. And your labor, and you, for the first time in a million years, you've got pricing power, you're going you're gonna to get those higher wage gains. So do I really care that the monthly CPI in the month of October was only 0.2, revised up to 0.3, because the healthcare and insurance calculation got changed by four-tenths of 1%? Are you kidding me? Wage gains are here, and they're not going away. The most recent data shows the persistence of high wage gains. The, the ratio of job offers to applicants is still very high. So I don't care about used car prices. Wage gains, and again, inflation is a process. It's not an event. Wage gains are going to remain persistent, and therefore, I think it forms the, the, sets the groundwork for a big profits and margin squeeze. We're starting to see it. 
I don't want to get into an IQ contest debate about, oh, you know, the GDP. No, 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 no. We're here about asset prices. Stocks are a function of multiples and earnings. And Cantro, who happily came in the room the other day, reiterated, you know, the, the Piper sub $200 um, uh, S&P earnings estimate for 2023, being echoed by the likes of Deutsche Bank, Michael Wilson, even Goldman, I forget Goldman Sachs, they're cheerleaders. Um, with the S&P at 3900 and if we ever do get a credit cycle, then, you know, God knows we'll get a recession. How, mo- how the market bottoms here is insanity. It's a pipe dream. All right, so listen, I'm on a rant. You know, I, I'm reliably told I talk too much, but then on the other hand, I get a lot of DMs. People say they like when I rant, so here we go. I'm going to stop, and with all that, we have the great John Roke of 22V. Um, one, I, I, when John speaks, I listen. This fabulous work. John, it's a privilege. It's really great that you share your wisdom uh, with, with, with those of us here on Twitter. Also, albeit in a very colorful way with a lot of references to sports, celebrities, etc., so maybe, I don't know if you want to start in with a lead-in about the 1938 NFL title game or any thoughts about the Polo Grounds. I know the Polo Grounds suck compared to Yankee Stadium, but any of it, John, the floor is yours. So take it away, John. Good to see you, man. George, thanks for having me here. Um, and uh, thanks for that over-the-top introduction. So my father was born 1929, so he didn't see the 38 championship game, but he did often go to the Polo Grounds. And he did remark to me how you could see the lights on in Yankee Stadium for a night game when you were sitting in the polo grounds watching a night game there. Of course, because it was just across the river. Um, He was also a New York Giants baseball fan, a New York Giants football fan. Um, But he is very fond of telling me that he took my mother to see Gale Sayers play a preseason game at Yankee Stadium against the Giants. And I, um, I said to him, how was he? He just said in one word, he was just electric. You couldn't take your eyes off of him. So um, he's seen a lot, but he's not old enough to have seen the, um, uh, the 38 championship game. But thanks for the heads up on that. I'll tell him about it later. Terrific, John. So turning to things more relevant, I don't know if you want to go with the update of uh, the egg and cheese sandwich at, at the uh, – at the, uh, which I'm call it the the, the 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 breakfast places or the Arthur Avenue uh, pizza price indicator. But what can you tell us about real world inflation? What's going on in the real world, John? Well, um, George, it's been my take. Um, this happened in the spring of 2021 when um, when the Fed first got on the, the the transitory bandwagon. I thought that they were going to be totally wrong. It was a lucky uh, idea of mine, but I thought that they were going to be totally uh, wrong. And all I did at the time was I just went back and counted how many months in a row, you know, the PPI first, I started with the PPI had been above 6% year on year. And so we are now into the third longest cycle ever. And I know the year on year number peaked at 18% some months ago, and now it's down to 10.6%. But there are a few things to consider. We're now 21 months in a row of greater than 6% year on year um, figures. That's the third longest streak in history. The two prior longest streaks happened in the uh, early 70s until the kind of later 70s. And then again, later 70s, because it reversed it pretty quickly into the early 80s. But it took the Fed almost nine years to get the inflation genie back in the bottle the last time figures were this high. And, And I also think that this is 
the following is especially true is that these prices are now embedded. There is no way that the pizza maker is going to lower the price of his slice, despite the fact that wheat might be less expensive for him. It's never happening. He's going to keep that price there. Oh, Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay, they're going to not, you're saying they're not going to reduce the price of the slice. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, that was good. It was kind of like, yeah, um, uh, it was an Ali uh, rhyme for him, for which round he was going to knock his opponent out in. And then can, can I share a, a long ago story with you? I think it's still important. Go for it. When, when I was at Key Square, Key Square uh, employed um, a former Federal Reserve governor as a consultant. He would come down on a monthly basis. Um, he taught at Harvard. He'd take Amtrak in and he would uh, sit in our offices all day long uh, in a conference room. And everybody on the investment committee would go in and speak with him. He was a nice gentleman. And I didn't spend an hour with him because I didn't think that he could tell me what I had most questions about. And I had most questions about price action. But I would often talk to him about the Red Sox and the Celtics. So one day he came in for, uh, for a day to spend with us. And I asked him if he wanted to go get a bacon, egg, and cheese around the corner on, um, on 60th Street. So we went downstairs. And when we were on the street on Madison and 60th, I said to him, can I ask you a question? And he said, yeah. And I said to him, how many civilians does a four-star general speak to in a week? And he said, I don't know, John. I said, the answer is zero. The federal, uh, pardon me, the four-star general speaks to only people of like rank or slightly lower rank. He hardly ever speaks to soldiers. The only time he really does it is in a photo op. Otherwise, every minute of his day is scheduled. He has no time for civilians. I said to him, how many civilians does a four-star general speak to in a year? He said, I don't know, John. I said, the, the answer is still zero. I said to him, you're from New Jersey, aren't you? He said, yeah. And then I said to him, well, then maybe you'll be able to answer this question. How many civilians does a mafia capo speak to in a week? And he looked at me and he said, how am I supposed to know that? I said, the answer is zero. He speaks to one guy on the street, a noisy street, whispers in his ear, no Instagram, no Pinterest, no texting, a burner phone, and he puts policy out. And if policy's not followed, you know what you know what happens thereafter. Now, here's a question I think you're going to be able to answer. How many civilians does the Fed chair speak to in a week? And he said, now I get your point. The point is that, is that it's very hard to understand what the person on the street is going through with respect to prices when you sit in the back seat of a Federal Reserve chauffeur town car, when you don't pump your own gas, and when you're feted weekly at different cocktail parties or Washington, D.C. events. The Fed has missed it because they're so far from the ground. And I think these prices are going to stay relatively sticky. And I think rates will stay relatively sticky, which to, to me says that it's going to be continue to be difficult for equity markets. So, John, that's, you know, we oftentimes it's too easy to get caught up in anecdotes. But I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. That rings so true, I think, to everybody in this room. So let's speak to rates now for a second. Let's generalize or zoom out, as our Bitcoin maxi friends would say. You made, you had the cojones. You're gonna, you have to remind me with these. What's the Italian word for cojones, Josh? I for, John, I forget. Coglioni. Coglioni. You have the, you have the coglioni, okay, to call rates to three when they were like at two, and then when they were nearing three, you said four. 
So victory lap, let me know when you're done. Victory lap in order, you're entitled to catch your breath. I mean, let's call it like it is. Too many people take shots on Twitter, but they're not recognized when you got it right. You made such an out-of-consensus call, and it was so right. Okay. So we had the rocket ship move to where the 10-year the went to 420, wherever it went to. It came off to, what, 340 the other day. As I mentioned in the space on Friday, I was sitting listening to Vincent Deliward speak on Thursday, going on about why inflation is going to be sticky, speaking to specifically the fact that cheap labor, cheap energy, cheap goods are all things of the past. Those are the forces that gave us the greatest inflation. And now they're all up and to the right. And so he thinks, you know, Fed will be lucky to get inflation down to four or five. Maybe they'll do that by the spring and take a victory lap. And I sat there listening to all this. And then I saw some indicators are all read the same stuff showing how, you know, economic activity has come in, you know, at or better than expected for the most part. Yes, housing is a disaster, but the rest of the economy is, you know, doing okay. And more importantly, funnily enough, European data has been better than expected, largely because energy prices have come off. People are now getting amped up about China doing better or prospectively doing better because of the prospect of reopening. So I'm looking at all this and I'm saying, and I see the 10-year at 340, I'm like, wait a second. What are bond yields doing here at 340? So that all just sets the ground, the context, T-ball time, John, for you to update your views on rates from here. I mean, on a predatory tactical basis, I went in a shorter bonds on Friday. I think yields are going higher from here. But let's not get caught up our narratives. One of the things I love about you, you do, John, is trade what you see, not what you think. How do the charts speak to you about the outlook for rates, both the two-year and the 10-year? Okay. So I think it is not the right spot to short, um, pardon me, uh, to be long 10-year treasuries here. I think rates are going to bounce. Both short-term momentum indicators that I follow are oversold. And the yield came down to, let's call it 3.5%, which was the last breakout level for yield that occurred in mid-September of 2022. So you had a retracement to the breakout level. So I think yields are going to bounce. I think we, all of us, will be able to tell on this bounce if yields are going to have enough chutzpah to be able to make new highs. And the reason I say that is because weekly momentum indicators um, for the 10-year yield have put in kind of, you know, a a little momentum peak, and the monthly momentum indicator for the 10-year yield is slowing. So I think that um, we're going to have a bounce here in 10-year yields but I'm not necessarily certain it's going to be big enough to make a new high above where it was in October. But I'm, I, I think the yields will bounce here on support and oversold. If yields were a stock and the fundamental story was still intact for this stock, this is where you'd be looking to find some sort of a bounce for it. Okay, so at least short run, yields are likely to go higher than lower. And then we'll, we'll check in. Details to follow in 11 o'clock news. We'll, we'll, we'll see, how, see how far this thing runs. But... As you then look across asset classes, so that's the yield piece of it. Um, and I see we got Michael Kramer in the room here, too, who's a big macrophile. So we get Michael to chime in as well. But now that when you look at the dollar and also crude, and again, everyone needs to get down on their knees and pray to not Allah, but to John. He nailed this freaking energy, energy call as well. He's too modest. He doesn't take victory laps. I can say about his calls what, what he can't say. He was cautioning about crude and the stocks. John, um, what, when you look at crude, and this thing can't. This thing, this thing has no pulse. I mean, the crude chart needs some Viagra. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just horrible. 
But what is so so and it, so again? Maybe we're going to get different answers here. But what does crude look like to you, and what does the dollar look like to you? Okay, so first uh, I'll I'll start with crude. Um, I think that, um, and uh, I'm going to use the uh, CLZ three. Um, that's the futures contract for 2023, uh, December 2023. I'm going to use that price. I think that crude has risk to the low 60s, 60 bucks. And all of my momentum work has peaked and rolled. And it did it kind of, you know, I'd say about five months or so ago. It was a very tough sell or uh, a very tough discussion to have with guys who are very bullish crude. Um, And I will tell you, uh, I was in London maybe six weeks or so ago, and I went there with the same kind of notion to say, I find it very difficult to believe that crude can go higher here because everybody who's long crude is long for the exact same reasons, is that the SPR had to be refilled and that China would open up. I said it's been rare in my career that everybody could be right for the exact same reasons, especially with momentum indicators weakening. So um, I, I thought that crude would, uh, would be lower. And, you know, so it's held, I guess, at the 70-69 area based on this CLZ3 contract. But I think it's going to fail, and I think it's going to get to 60. And I think, um, and this is my imagination talking, I think what we're witnessing here, and this has been a pretty decent trade as well, because I went out on being long silver relative to oil, and, and that's worked pretty well. I think it will continue to work. Precious metals are improving relative to oil and industrial metals are improving relative to oil. I do think, and this is, again, my imagination talking, that in, in 2023, we'll see metals prices do better and energy prices do poorly, uh, kind of the opposite of what we saw in 2022. I am encouraged that gold is improving here because I know that there is no um, historical record, at least the records that I keep, of a commodity-driven bull market without gold participating. So I'm glad that gold is participating. It could be that oil takes the year off. It had a big year. It actually had a big, you know, almost two years from mid-2020 until mid-2022. So it might be that crude has a difficult time in 2023, but I'm encouraged by the action in, in gold and silver. Uh, and I'm waiting for the ags to pick up, but I certainly want to own precious and I want to own industrial relative to crude. And then you asked about the dollar. I want to uh, be long um, yen on any dollar yen bounce. I want to be long sing dollar on any dollar sing dollar bounce. I want to be long tie bot on any dollar tie bot bounce. And I want to be long won on any dollar Korean won bounce. The dollar's oversold on a daily basis, much like uh, the 10 year is oversold. The dollar still has an upward sloping 200 day. It can bounce here, but I want to sell dollar yen. I want to sell dollar bot, sell dollar sing dollar, and sell dollar Korean won on any bounce. I think the yen is going to do better, especially. John, let's just turn to the market a little bit here. Um, yep. So you've made consistently, just to remind everyone in the room, you've been on this kick for a long while, favoring non-growth over growth. Uh, where is your, please update your views on that. And then, um, you know, so A, you know, are you still a believer in non-growth over growth? B, 
out of that, you know, what would you, what groups would you avoid? What would you, what would you, uh, what would you buy? And then lastly, overall market call, I think like myself, you'd be looking for much lower levels earlier. What's your overall market call? So take those in any order you choose. Okay. All right. So I'm going to start with the S&P first. So um, the S&P had a big rally. I guess it was up about 17 or 18% over 35 days. It got just above its 200-day moving average, but that was still downward sloping. So my, my, my written comments were don't chase anything into a downward sloping 200-day moving average because we're still in a bear market. And I thought it was a sale there. My actual sell number was 4,200, but it got to 4,100. Um, and momentum's rolling over. So I think the S&P comes lower. And the break of the, let's say, what was the 3,600 level going back to June uh, and then late September, early October implies uh, that there could be risk to 28.75. So you take the August high of 43.25 minus the June low, I'm going to estimate it at 3,600, gives you 725 S&P points. You take the June low, 3,600 minus 725 S&P points, it gets you down to 28.75. That is just out there. But in order for that to be important, again, we're going to have to break 3,600. I would suggest to you that the only time uh, Mike Kantrowitz, I'm certain, would, 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 would corroborate this, but I don't want to put any words in his mouth. Um, in my estimation, the only time that I saw historically where a, uh, a triple bottom um, worked uh, with respect to the indexes, and I could certainly be wrong, um, was in the 0809 period. Um, and so if we come back down to 3,600, I would not expect it to hold. Steve Chauvin told me long ago that support levels are good when an item moves away from it quickly. Weak support um, or, or a weak item will continue to be drawn down to that support level. So my estimation here is that the S&P remains weak because it continues at least two times now to be drawn to 3,600. I think coming down the third time, it will not hold. And then, George, you were kind enough to ask about growth to non-growth. I continue to prefer non-growth uh, to growth. Some would call it value. I just call it non-growth because I didn't want to have to define value. And I prefer um, the, the four components of the non-growth um, side of that equation. That's basics, energy, industrials, and financials. Now, there is a rub here, and I'm going um, to criticize myself here. Um, so if anybody else wants to, they're certainly welcome. The amber flashing light to this scenario right here is that the bank stocks are weakening. There are five Gospels. Four of them occur in the New Testament of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The fifth Gospel is the stock market cannot go up if banks go down. That's the fifth Gospel. You can't fight it. <laughs> John, you're going to have to give these. This is a keeper. we got to gotta tweet this one out. We'll talk about it offline. All right. So the fifth gospel is the market cannot go up without the, without the financials. Is that right? No, no. F financials don't have to go up. They just can't go down. So oh, The market can't go up with financials going down. Got it. Okay. Period. And so if you take a look at the KBW Bank Index, I mean, that looks pretty darn weak. That's really in bad shape. I mean, take a look at Bank America. 
I know J.P. Morgan had a giant rally from the October low, but I certainly couldn't chase that, especially if Bank America did not corroborate. And Bank America got through its 200-day and then rolled beneath it again. I mean, the stock trades at $32. It looks like it has risk to 20. And so that's the risk. I mean, take a look at a weekly chart for Bank America. You could certainly go back 10 years, but you'll notice that it bottomed relatively at the COVID low at around the $20 area. The breakout level in late 2016 was about 20 high teens. And it's below a downward sloping 40-week moving average. Relative to the S&P, it's poor. And its momentum indicator it looks kind of, you know, punky to me. So I'm concerned about the banks. That's the rub here. And I will tell you, and maybe others can corroborate or, or, or dismiss this, but when you speak to some institutional investors about perhaps some risks in banks, their general reply is, yeah, but this isn't 2008, 2009 all over again. The banks are much healthier. Their balance sheets are much healthier. And of course, there's no way I can dispute that. But I think their complacency is the risk. If you're only concerned about banks is that they can't be GFC type scenarios again, well, then I guess you're never concerned about banks. But the last time Bank America, the last few times Bank America peaked roughly in 1998 at about $40, the stock got to 20. Uh, before GFC, of course, it got to 55 and then got down all the way to single digits. But okay, let's leave out the GFC period. This time, Bank America peaked at 50. Why? If the top of the range is somewhere between 40 and 50, why can't the bottom of the range be 20? So I'm not saying this is GFC all over again, but I certainly think Bank America, Bank America has risk to 20. If it has risk to 20, I really think it's going to be very difficult for the S&P to hold in. You know, it's interesting, John. I was chuckling to myself when you're going on about Bank of America and the financials. Um, I think in recent months, people talk about housing. And it's kind of the same catechism. Oh, well, you know, we underbuilt housing for so many years. We don't have the excess in mortgage financing that we had in the GFC, blah, 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 blah. But then I think back to the great Ivy Zellman. You know, we had her in a space back in June. She's so far ahead of the crowd. It's not even funny. Everything the captain obvious on CNBC has been talking about now, it was, it, was, it was spoken about in these spaces with Ivy six months ago. And she made the point that 20, yeah, history rhymes, John, John, as you know, it doesn't repeat itself. Yes, we don't have the same excess in, in, in financing, mortgage financing we had during the GFC. But she pointed out, you know, we also didn't have Uber. We, sorry, we didn't have Airbnb. We didn't have bill to rent. We didn't have, uh, you know, uh, 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 Blackstone. Um and, and, and Starwood and all these guys hoovering up large parts of the housing stock. She pointed out that 24% of all the transactions in housing this year were secondary, not primary transactions. Those are all economically motivated. Those are, those are transactions where the person buying the home is not living in it. And what was demand becomes supply. And so, again, um, you know, it kind of bears parallel to what you're talking about with the financials. So, John, with all that in mind, for the average guy in the room who's – well, actually, before I go to that question, one other question for you. As you, um, you, know, you speak to clients all the time, a lot of big money, um, what can you observe? You and I have always talked about – you know, I've always asked you the question about what's wrong with Louis saying. 
you know, the odd lot indicator, of course, he'll be in the federal witness protection program. We're not going to mention names. But when you think about the questions you're asked, and more importantly, the questions you're not asked, and what the smart guys are telling you, and what the idiots are asking you, and you just stand back and look on down from the field, up from the down from the press box. Sort of big picture takeaway. What would you say in terms of where, where investor attitudes are? And the second psychology, you know, I don't think we're in capitulation or despair yet at all. We're, I, I don't know where we are. I, I, maybe we're just sort of, I don't know if we're in denial or, you know, we're in denial and the market rallies back up again. So it's like, you know, you're saying there's a chance. All right. So how would you describe investor psychology and in, 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 in what's your, what's your sort of big picture advice for the average investor in the room, John? Um, okay, so I'm not going to give any advice because I don't have any skin in their game. And, you know, if something happens, I'd rather be a fool for myself, not a fool for anybody else. But I'll just share what I what I hear. So, for example, I, I'm, I'm negative on Amazon um, and I've been negative for some time on Amazon. And um, my target has been 75 uh, for Amazon. And so I keep hearing that Amazon is cheap at these levels. And so I, you know, I, I've said to myself, but not to anybody in particular, I guess it's going to be really cheap when it gets lower. So uh, I think that Amazon uh, is kind of emblematic of what I'm hearing with respect to big cap tech, that they're cheap. But I mean, Amazon is now back to level seen kind of mid 2018, and I think it's going lower. Um, it's a huge top relative to the S&P. It folded like a used napkin relative to the S&P. And I think that the case for big cap tech is, is that some investors that I speak with believe that, you know, this is just kind of a one-off year for them. My take is that this is kind of emblematic of the last time tech peaked and that it was a long time before they came back. So I think investors are going to be uh, pleasantly unsurprised, or not pleasantly, but, but just uh, surprised on a negative way with respect to how long these stocks can be out of favor, number one. Number two is, it's my estimation that most professional investors continue to believe that the Fed will, in some measure, come to their rescue. I've thought for a long time, for many months now, that that was really kind of the only narrative in place. And also, um, everything is on a razor's edge with respect to catching a rally. Everybody is really intent on catching a rally which suggests to me that most rallies are not likely to be the one. Um, only um, Walter Deemer is fond of saying, when it comes time to buy them, you won't want to. And I don't think we've gotten to that position yet. So I think sentiment is still kind of a little bit screwed up. I know that everybody will tell us that everybody else is negative, but you can't out-contrary yourself when you make that kind of statement. If you think everybody else is negative, well, then you want to buy them, which means that not everybody is negative. So I, I think that, um, we still have more difficulty to go through. We break 3,600, 2875 is the, is the next figure. And I think the big risk here is in the banks. Take a look at Bank America, as I suggested. Take a look at Wells Fargo on a monthly basis. I mean, if you took the names off of these charts, there's no way you're buying them. And that's what I think the risk is here, George. I've probably spoken too long. And there no, are no, John, this has been awesome. You're so generous with your time. Just real quickly, just FYI, if you look in the nest, John, uh, I took the liberty um, of tweeting out and posting there a couple of your uh, charts. You may want to speak to them. The first one shows 
I love your reference. For those who are not basketball fans, maybe Johnny, you have to fill them in on who uh, Hakeem Olajuwon was. Okay, but the first one shows the S and P uh, um, being rejected at forty two hundred, and then you've got a long term chart of uh, the Dow, and then you've got the growth non growth. So I don't know. You already kind of touched on this, but you just want to quickly just. Uh, the, those three or four charts are up in the nest. Just yes. Okay. Th- thank you, George. So Hakeem Olajuwon is the all-time leader in block shots for in NBA history. And I thought 4,200 kind of loomed just like he did when a shooter got into the paint. Um, and then you were near 4,200, downward sloping 200A, and the MACD was overbought. So to me, that's, that, that's a big problem. And then growth to non-growth, I think George just mentioned, which is something that I, I just referenced. And then I went back on the Dow to 1900, and I know that the Dow was up 6% in November and 14% in October. It had a two-month gain of almost 20%. It beat by a little bit the two-month gain from January through February 75, which was part of an early 75, early 76 rally of 75% that took the Dow to the top of its range at 1,000. And if you remember from your chart history, 66 through 82, the Dow was kind of capped at 1,000. And then, you know, after that, it was a big sale. And then there was a 20% two-month rally in June, July 38. That was part of a bigger move. But then when it failed, it was down another 41% over the next 41 months. So we had a big move in November and December. And when you have big moves in bear markets, you want to be sellers of big moves in bear markets. You don't want to chase big moves in bear markets. If it were a bull market, then certainly uh, we would take a different strategy. But I think you want to be sellers of big moves in bear markets. Yeah, John, on that last point, uh, you've even made the, the, the point many times in the past. Just to remind everyone, you may want to elaborate on it. I think I've got the numbers right. Um, really stuck with how uh, counter trend rallies in bear markets are a feature, not a bug. This is nothing. Uh, this comes with the territory. No one ever said bear markets are easy. They're treacherous. They're very, very hard. Very treacherous. And the one last one, too. Maybe just put the current bear market in the context of. Uh, past bear markets, but I committed to memory your statistics from the 2002 to 2000, 2000, 2002 bear market, where I believe you said something like 47, you know, in the context of NASDAQ falling 80%, the market was up 47% of those days. And I think there were 15 counter trend rallies of greater than 10% and 10 counter trend rallies of greater than 15%. So if we look at the scoreboard vis-a-vis this bear market, uh, what is it saying and has the stack up relative to that and what can we glean going forward? Okay, so um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the numbers. So far in 2022, I, I think I've gotten them all. There were five rallies. The first one was almost 9% in seven days. The second one was 11.5% in 15 days. The third one was 10% in eight days. The fourth one was, was big. It was almost 20% in 40 days. That went from kind of mid-June to mid-August. And then this last one was 17% in 35 days. So we've had five, uh, five rallies and, and so far five declines. So I, I think in the bear market, you're going to get another decline. And if we get under 3,600, it'll be down to 2,875. And George, you were kind enough to mention those, those NASDAQ um, figures. I mean, they're not, I mean, NASDAQ, there were 15 rallies. I think you, you said, and they were the average, um, you know, the average, Length of time was 17 days, and you got 23%. The biggest one was 75 days, and you got 51%. So I don't know that these have to repeat in detail. Um, you know, history uh, doesn't repeat, it rhymes. But um, I think this is not that dissimilar in terms of the 
overall activity. You come down, you get oversold, you get a rally, people get juiced up about it, and you kind of stop at or near the 200-day moving average. And then when it slopes downward, it's Hakeem Olajuwon. So, so, John, with that in mind, are you just going to let the tape do the talking? Or given that we got up pretty close to the 200-day, in terms of where we are right here, right now, do you think this trend rally is, is done? Or the jury's still out? You need to see some more confirmation of a decline before you'd want to say that. No, I, I, I will say, I, I could be wrong, but I will say with some measure of confidence that I think it's this counter-trend rally is over. And it's over because of the way Bank America and Wells Fargo and the other banks act. I mean, take a look at, at, at what MTB did last week. I mean, you don't get an MTB kind of situation in, in a bull market or in a bull market for banks. I mean, 100, 100%. you had a downside gap in October. You created a ledge beneath the... Uh, um, a cresting 200-day moving average that had another downside gap, you know, on, on Wednesday. That's not bull market action. And I doubt that this is just going to be a one-off for MTB. So I feel pretty confident that the rally was is over. And this time it's over because the banks are failing. Lastly, John, and if you want to stick around for some questions, that's great. This has been unbelievable. But I did put up finally, and probably the most important chart, if you look to the nest, John, I put up your chart uh, from your most recent deck from the other week showing what happens to the market once you get the the, the much-desired pivot uh, and what that's meant in the past. You just want to elaborate on that a little bit? Okay, so I, I wanted to go back to the 70s and try to see what happened to the S&P after the Fed cut rates. Um, and then I juxtapose it with, with the recession because Bloomberg's, you know, allows you to do that with their great charting package. And... You know, the um, early to mid-70s, the S&P fell 41% after the Fed cut. And then it fell 17% in the early 80s after. And then uh, in the early 90s, it fell 20%, which was still in a major uptrend. Um, and then, of course, in the uh, tech meltdown, it was down 38%. And if I remember, uh, I think during that time was when Marty Zweig penned a, um, a, uh, a Barron's column um, you know, kind of telling uh, where he had gotten a little bit too aggressive too soon uh, with respect to the Fed cuts. But that was down 38 percent. And then GFC was kind of the granddaddy of them all down 53 percent. So I think we as a business are kind of too complacent and too confident in the Fed's ability to get this right. I mean, if, if the Fed were a shooter in basketball, they're ice cold. You wouldn't pass them the ball at all. <laughs> I used to say to my son when he was playing point guard, I say, John, why, why are you passing the ball that part of the game? I, he, I said, you don't want to pass the, the ball to a guy who's a worse shooter than you. You want to pass the ball to a guy who's a better shooter than you. So I think if the Fed were you know, on your team, the coach would have put him on the bench already because he's cold as ice or the Fed's cold as ice. So I don't think you, you want to give any confidence to what yeah, but they're, John, they're, but John, they're, John, they're doing just the opposite. It's like they got J-Pal in the pivot as if he's Shaq, and they keep lobbing it into him, pounding it into the post, even though he keeps bricking it. Like, this makes no sense, John. Well, I remember, you know, playing uh, hoops when I was younger, and, and I had a friend of mine who just – he was like a black hole. The ball went in. It never came out. And I said, Anthony, aren't you going to pass the ball? He said, John, I'm a shooter. You shoot if you're hot, and if you're not, you shoot till you get hot. So maybe that's their M.O., 
That's hilarious. John, you're on fire. All right. So let's go. We got a couple, we got a few smart cookies. Thank you up for here. your time, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, George. John, that's great. Stick around if you can. If not, um, everyone give John a follow. Um, he's just fabulous, fabulous technician and wonderful guy. And he's just so generous to come and share his time with us. Uh, hey, Mr. Newman, how are you, my friend? Uh, please unmute yourself. You got some questions or comments for John DeMarco? Hey, yeah. Hi, George. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, before John gets moving, I did want to ask him a couple things because I just want to comment on some of the things he said. First of all, on the banks, I couldn't agree more. All you have to do is look at Credit Suisse, right, to know something's rotten in Denmark or Switzerland or whatever. Um, John, you had mentioned uh, the Asian currencies against the dollar. I wanted to get your thoughts on EEM, EWZ, as they portray, as they you know, port, you know, relative to the currency moves. That's number one. Number two, you mentioned about tech, and I really agree with you. And uh, I want to talk a little more about this later, but but you know, your time's short. Everyone sort of needs to remember that in between 2000 and 2015, Cisco and Microsoft did four baggers with revenues, four times increase over that 15-year period, and Cisco went down 50% in that 15-year span, and Microsoft was flat. And so we could debate sort of how big this tech bubble run up was in this time around. And we know how it was back then. And that was a 15 year period where those tech stocks, well, Cisco did minus 50% and Microsoft did nothing and their revenues expanded massively. So I do agree with you. It's very crowded. And I wanted to get your take on sort of order of magnitude relative value in the bubble this time in tech versus then. If you could do that. So EEM, EWZ, the banks, and then the tech talk. Yeah. Okay. So thank you very much for the questions. Uh, so I'm going to try, I'm going to try to do this um, fairly quickly. I think I want to believe that EEM on, on a pullback will hold and that it can start to show some relative strength vis-a-vis -vis the S&P 500. And I think it could happen I believe, and I do, that the dollar's not likely to go up um, big here. However, the rub is, is that I want to sell Brazil. So that's compromising the EEM situation. I think the IBOV itself and then the EWZ, um, the, uh, the ETF, are sales. So that certainly throws a wrench into what I want to believe for the EEM or what I think could happen because uh, Brazil, I think, is a sale, um, both in local and using the, um, the ETF of the, uh, of the EWZ. And then, you know, with respect to the banks, and I know you mentioned Credit Suisse, and I know it had a little bounce recently, but um, I think the KRE is, is a big sale right here. It's below, it's downward sloping, 40-week moving average. It got the Hakeem Olajuwon treatment twice in the last few months, it is, go it is rolling relative to the S&P 500. And I, I never had any luck with my own money trying to buy items in this position relative to their 40-week moving averages. And I always think of the 40-week moving average and its slope as either the demand line or the supply line. When an item is still joined by an upward sloping 40-week moving average, then in general, demand overwhelms supply. But when an item is below a downward sloping 40-week moving average, then supply of stock overwhelms the demand of stock. 
And I think that's a simple equation for me to remember. And in addition, and I don't like to pattern guess because I know you, you, you get, uh, you get kind of knocked around for that, but I might be able to craft a scenario where the KRE has built a head and shoulders top. The shoulder, left shoulder was kind of um, spring 2021. The head was late 2021, early 2022. And now the right shoulder is being formed in 2022. And it would suggest to me that the downside target, and I'm not taking the full count, I'm only taking the right shoulder count, would be down around 50. So that's a pretty nice trade, I think, here. And I think you have a tight stop here. It's worth doing. And so I'm, I'm not a fan of the banks. And again, that's the biggest rub here. And, and with respect to the magnitude, I think was your last question comparing this time to maybe what we've seen uh, in the past for, let's say, tech. I think I got that right. Um, I, I know that the NDX was down 80 plus percent from peak to trough last time. I, I don't think I'm good enough to, to estimate that sort of decline. However, if we merely take the NDX, and this is not a forecast, I'm just kind of, you know, going back and forth as I would do on the phone with, a, with an investor or in a meeting with an investor. If we just take the NDX back to its last real breakout level, that's at the 8,000 level. So that would be down more than 50% from peak to trough. So certainly would not be the magnitude of what we saw in the last time. But it is not crazy to think that it could get back to its last breakdown, uh, last breakout level from a base which happened in late 2019. That was really when we accelerated this time, which was to me akin to what we did in late 98 into the 2000 peak. However, I will tell you that the acceleration this time into its peak, at least based on the growth to non-growth relationship, was greater than any prior acceleration for that relationship as far back as I have data. So we might be able to say that the excesses into the peak this time, especially for growth to non-growth, were worse than at any other time for which I have data. Thanks for that. Hey, Mark, great question. Hey, John, Thanks, if you've got Mark. time for one more question before you got to go, um, she's been waiting patiently. Uh, I'd like to have, she's got a couple of really good questions for you. Surreal uh, Japon wants to ask you, so Surreal, please unmute yourself. You got a question for John? Yes, thank you for bringing me up. First of all, I would like to say that this year has been wonderful for me, thanks to listening to George Noble Spaces. So big, big thank you. You are embarrassing me. Thank you. I had no idea you were going to say that. But it's totally true. And um, my two questions. My position has been um, cash, note, roro, gold, silver, and all value. And I've been in bullish on gold and silver and value stock, stocks for around two, well, value always, but gold and silver for one and a half years. It never went anywhere. And now everyone that I'm listening to is bullish on gold and silver. Isn't that a contrarian indicator? Because everyone expected to go, expects it to go higher. And number two is uh, if I'm looking at S&P equal weight chart, it looks like it is still very high up. And the stocks that went down were all gross this year. And I'm afraid that if we'll, uh, I think that we are going to get a um, very deep 
uh, recession next year. In this case, don't you think that value stocks are going to catch up because they have been holding pretty well this year and they might fall even lower than growth next year? Thank you. Okay, those are, those are really good and challenging questions. I'm going to take the gold and silver one uh, in order first. Um, I'm going to politely disagree with you. I do not believe that, you know, everyone consensus, a great majority of people are long gold and silver. I, I don't believe it for a second. Um, first off, I will tell you, um, and I'm old now because I, I have a, a lot of gray hair to show it. Um, I don't even know that there are five people left in the business managing money who ever made real money being long gold. Um, I think the people who did make real money being long gold in prior cycles are, have either passed from this earth, rest in peace, or have um, gone on to some nobler pursuits, uh, no pun intended, George, nobler pursuits with respect to uh, their life's work. So I, I don't think that there are a lot of people who are long gold and silver. It might be that they speak about it, but I don't believe that's the case. Certainly, I would tell you that there are fewer people that I speak with long gold and silver than were long energy coming into 2022. So perhaps that's a, a good analogy. Um, there were few, if any, institutional investors long energy coming into 2022, and there are fewer people long, in my estimation, gold and silver here. That's number one. Um, although I happen to agree with you that I think both are going higher and I think the top of the ranges are in order for both gold and silver. And then with respect to your question about um, the equal weighted S&P, I think that's a really sharp observation. I do believe, however, that the relative performance will continue to favor value or non-growth relative to growth. I think that growth is in an out cycle relative to value or non-growth. And I want to sell any rally where growth outperforms non-growth. But your question is sharp on the money with respect to the equal weighted S&P. And if there's going to be a decline, it likely will hit the sectors that have not yet really been hurt. I think it's a really sharp question. Thank you for your questions. Hey, John, if I could, you triggered me with a couple things you just said. Um, one, when you mentioned gold, um, just for the audience, because I, I think I know your view, but, um, uh, you know, one of the narratives, or well, let me just get to the chase. What do you think on Bitcoin without putting narrative with it? What does the Bitcoin chart look like to you? And then two, coming back on energy, is this just a pause that refreshes on energy, i.e. we're correcting to maybe to perhaps some breakout sort of level, and then we're going to go on and get on energy? Um, so, the, so tactically, yes, I get it. You're, you're negative on, on energy and energy stocks, but you know, structurally, do you think we ultimately go higher in energy? Uh, so, so one question is energy. The other one is Bitcoin. Okay, so I'm going to go uh, first on Bitcoin. Um, I've had a long, long-standing target from November of 2021 of 10,000 on Bitcoin. I think it gets there. Items that go sideways beneath downward sloping 200-day moving averages, those are not bases. Those are ledges that break again to the downside. And you'll notice, and the listeners, I believe, will notice that Bitcoin's last three declines were kind of very um, stair-step-like and measured. You went sideways from June through August. You tried to put in a bounce to the 100-day, failed. And then you went sideways from kind of early September through 
early November, failed. And now we're going sideways again. I think it's first off, it's remarkable to me that it's not at 10,000, but um, or lower or lower than where it is here. But I think this is not an opportunity to 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 turn positive or to look at it uh, with some measure of uh, a glint in your eye and say, hey, maybe this is the bottom. I still think it's way too soon. Um, and then number two is with respect to energy, I, I don't I'm going to use a Stan Weinstein line. And Stan Weinstein is fond of saying, I try not to look around too many corners. And so I don't think I'm good enough to answer your question. I love it, John. You call him like you see him. And you're one of the few guys on the street, been around long enough to be able to say and not be ashamed to say, I just don't know. Love you for that. Um, all right, before we go to Neely, because we're going to do some consumer questions here. A lot to talk about with the consumer. I want to get AB, if you got a quick question, AB, and then I want to go to Neely. AB, please unmute yourself. You know, thanks, George. <clears throat> Happy Sunday to everybody. Uh, thanks for hosting the space. Um, and uh, the change, I, yeah, quick, obviously, you're like an auto-follow, listening to you with your with your wisdom and experience and whatnot and just what you have to say uh, is incredible. Um, and this is a you know, great space. There's so many smart people in here. i just looking at the deal. It's just like the Fed talks the talk. Can they walk the walk? Um, uh, I think the Fed at this point, uh, I think they're – I guess my two cents there, how many tools do they have left in the toolbox? You know, what, what, what's the toolbox? They're just going to keep, keep, keep fucking raising the credit card limit. We've got 31 trillion, 32 trillion, 33 trillion interest rates going up. How do you service the debt? What goes on? They're all fucking hat and no fucking cattle. The fucking banksters own them. You know, who's running this fucking fucking clown show? I, I don't know if that no. to me. I don't think I can answer it one way or another. Yeah, no, AB. I think we're all we're all kind of disgusted with the Fed, and, and again, they, you know, if someone wants to get up here and talk about how they're actually talking the talk, because I think probably most people in this room would all say no. They 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 you know, talk is cheap. Show me the money. They don't got you know, John John Rook. I don't know if you saw this, uh, but I I put a tweet out the other day. Um, I can't remember where I got where I borrowed it from, but um, after all the machinations, all the huffing and puffing, I think I can. I think I can. It was only last week or the week before where on a 12-month rate of change basis, the Fed balance sheet went down. You know, yeah, they've been slowly taking money out of the system the last few months. But let's not forget, you know, they were they were still buying mortgage-backed securities into the face of the biggest bull market in, in, in housing history has ever seen. So they only started shrinking the balance sheet. I think it was from late spring. So on a on a twelve month basis, it's only now for the first time that the balance sheet's gone down. Forget about what's happening with reserve repo and all the other nonsense. Okay, it just these guys. I, I'm told I should refrain from using four letter words. Okay, these guys have no cred, none. But yet, people are begging. So many of your clients, John, that you speak to, the ones that are overweight tech and fang stocks, please, you know, Kathy, please, please, we want more liquidity. No, no. These guys are, are, are full of it. And I'm not going to use a stronger term, but you know what I'm saying, John? I mean, they're just, it's like a giant kabuki theater. Uh, well, it, it is. And, and I think, you know, my, many investors have been conditioned to just expect that uh, they'll, they'll raise the, uh, you know, the magic wand and, um, and, and make things better again. I just don't think they're going to do it now. 
you know, uh, I, I think certainly you and I may have talked about this. I know I've talked about it with others. I think ultimately kind of the Fed is the last public institution standing with respect to not being hammered for, let's say, big mistakes or, you know, you know, public uh, indiscretions. Um, certainly the presidency, I'm not talking about presidents, but the presidency, Congress, the Senate, Major League Baseball, Boy Scouts of America, you could go on and on. But I think they're the last ones. And I think it's important um, to read um, um, the Lords of the Lords of Finance, which the subtitle was The Bankers Who Broke the World. And I think it's important to read The Lords of Easy Money, which was published, I think, earlier this year. I think both are must reads with respect to seeing how much this is formerly, you know, um, on the money group is now they're cold. And when you're cold, it takes a long time to get hot again. I think that's what it is. And I don't expect that they're going to be able to right this ship um, by doing what they're doing. This is like the Boston Strangler, Andrew Tony. Like when he's on, you could triple team him. Oh man, he was hot as hell. But when he when he went cold, he put it up from thirty five. Wouldn't even hit the yeah. backboard. It'd be like, what the hell? I mean, I mean, Jerome Powell's Andrew Tony on a cold streak. Yeah, listen, I, I don't know how many others will get that reference, but I certainly get it. <laughs> I have a question, right. guys. Yeah, um, make, make it a quick one, Raging, because you're speaking out of order. I'm sorry about that. My apologies. I'm relatively new to space. Yeah, we have an order in this room, so could you please wait your turn? Um, sure, sorry, when is I my mean, turn? I don't mean to be a jerk. It's just people, no problem. People just, you know, try to keep an order here. Yeah, people, definitely. No no worries. All right, I want to go to Neely now. Um, there's so much talk about the consumer. Neely, you were fabulous on Friday. Um, we were talking about Lululemon blowing up and a whole bunch of others. And you and I were having a back and forth about, you know, tax withholding and everything that's going to happen come the new year. So, Neely, uh, what's top of mind you want to share uh, share with the audience? Floor is yours, Neely. Good to see you. Thanks, George. You know, George, I really appreciate the back and forth, back channel conversations because, you know, you keep, you keep us on our toes, both publicly and privately. And I think that that is a really good sign of critical thinking. And so I appreciate when you follow up and say, but what about, but what about, but what about? So just uh, public gratitude for um, iron sharpening iron, as it were. Hey, I had a question actually for John um, as well. John, you're like, I'm just trying to eat breakfast. Okay. So here, here's something that's been interesting. I've been in a handful of spaces over the last two weeks with some like total hitters, you know, Chanos, right? Daniel DiMartino booth. I mean, just hitters and have asked um, you guys, consistently this question and it's been interesting how they're not listening to each other's spaces but they're basically saying the same thing and so i'd be curious your perspective on this i've been asking them okay as experts and people who have walked this earth since the earth you know cooled uh and has seen market movements you know there are things that you know because they're factual there's things that you believe because you've got wisdom and expertise and time that you've invested into that belief but there are always something that you do not yet know that kind of haunts your curiosity. Like if you had 10 more hours, what would you work on? If you had 20 more hours, what would you work on? And, and posing that question, and I would love your perspective, but in posing that question, the, the things I've heard back have been some form of private debt has gone to places it actually didn't belong. 
Um, that was a near quote from Daniel DiMartino Booth, but, you know, Chenos basically said something very similarly. I'm just, it feels like it's somewhere in that commercial real estate, somewhere in that lending, totally dovetailing with your banking comment. Would love your perspective and reaction to that frame up. Well, Neely, I will just, John, you, you want to take that? You there, John? No, I, 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 and Neely, I'm not trying to be rude. I, I don't think I can offer uh, the insight that some of those others suggested. So I'm going to politely say I'm, I'd rather listen to some of the other replies. So thank you for the question. Neely, let me take a shot at that. Um, as Andrew Smithers, I believe, said, well, I know he said it, whether he, first, whether he was the first one to say it, I don't know. Andrew Smithers was, is a great strategist uh, out of the UK. I first met back in the 80s. He was a senior executive at S.G. Warburg, subsequently moved to Merchant to UBS, and he actually opened the uh, Tokyo office for S.G. Warburg. One of the smartest guys you'll ever meet. He's in that sort of rarefied Jeremy Grantham type of league, real intellect. Um, he had a great line. The role of a bear market is to return capital to its rightful owner. Again, the role of a bear market is to return capital to its rightful owner. There is no question that money's gone to places it didn't belong. It's like water seeking its own level. It will flow until it finds its level. Too much money was put in the system. We overcooked the goose. And so it, 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 it got diverted from outside traditional channels into untraditional channels. One of the great things about America is the entrepreneurial spirit and can always find new ways to destroy capital. And there's no question it's, it's, it's gone to places it shouldn't have. And as the tide goes out on this tsunami of liquidity and the cost of capital starts to rise to a more appropriate level, um, there's going to be a lot of wealth destruction. There's no question about that. And rather than deploring that and abhorring that, John, apologies to Muhammad Ali, deploring and abhorring. We should welcome that. And the reason I say that is, is when you don't have price signals, when prices cease to, cease to have information content, you get misallocation of capital. So you know, Mikey in those commercials, when he puts his finger in the wall socket, he gets, ele he gets electric shock. He'll know not to do that again. Well, we need price to once again do what it's done historically, which is, you know, ration capital. There needs to be a signal coming from price. And when there is no signal coming from price, you get the malinvestment excess we've seen for so many years. You get Kathy Wood. You get crypto. You get SPACs. You get NFTs. You get stocks in 30 times sales. I can go on and on and on. What the market's going to do is anybody's guess. I firmly believe it's going a lot lower. I believe John does as well. We've been consistently saying that in these rooms for a year. It doesn't go down every day and every week, but we've gotten it right. And I think that process is incomplete. John. When you just, John, this is pattern recognition time now. When you have the implosion of a, of a bubble, let's take ARC, use that as a poster child for speculative excess. 
And, you know, ARC, I think, peaked at 160, 170. It's like 34th there or something like that. So 80% from the peak. And I don't have the numbers updated for the last couple of weeks. I suspect she's had some redemptions. But as of a month ago, despite being down 70% year to date, she started the year at 100 and, you know, we're 35, whatever, 65%. She had taken a billion dollars net this year. I filed it under the heading of things you don't see at a bottom. So, John, not to get lost too much in the anecdote of ARC, but just using that as a proxy for what, for what we're talking about and the cycle of psychology and the speculative type coming in and going out. What do you make of that? That A billion dollars coming into ARC, despite the fact that it's down 70% this year? John? I, 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 think, um, I think that ARC is emblematic of this era with respect to, please, I'm not equating them, so please, no, no, no nasty uh, direct messages. I think that ARC is emblematic of a recidivist criminal who continues to rob the CVS or the Walgreens or the local, you know, um, supermarket or gas station and then continues to be let out and they continue to perpetuate with their crime spree. You know, um, there are some people who will get to the front page of the New York Post or just inside the New York Post and they've been arrested 30 times and 40 times and any rational person who lives in this area or any area would say, how come this person, this criminal is not in jail and they keep getting another chance. I think it's kind of the same thing. There's a, a, um, there's a story, there's a dream with respect to ARC and ARC related stocks. And you don't get a bubble popped until it's down 80 to 90% from its peak. And in my chart packet on Friday, I had a chart for Carvana, and the title was The Anatomy of a Bubble Popped. Carvana has had eight declines, eight declines since its peak in late 2021 of about 50%. The last one was 45%, so I'm going to just call it 50. I'm going to round it off. Eight declines of 50%. Its total decline is 99%. As of last Wednesday, there were still eight buys on the stock. As of Friday, there were four buys on the stock. So I guess it, it's going to take a zero for the last few buys to give in and, and, and capitulate. Perhaps it's the same way for, you know, the example that, that, that you referenced, George. But the anatomy of a bubble is that items go down 80 to 90 percent. Some of them go all the way down. That's what happens when a bubble pops. If it's not down 80 to 90 percent, it's not popped yet. And by the way, John... Maybe you, you always have a funnier, or more articulate way of expressing it. But, John, what's the line about, you know, an 80% stock that cuts in half is about 90%. You know what I'm talking about? It's like there's just so many pieces of crap out there that are down 80 that that should be down – or down 70 should be down 90. I mean, down 70 and down 90 is still another 67% decline. So when you look at a lot of these pieces of merchandise, as you would affectionately refer to them, they're floating around under the 200-day – that are down 70 and people say, Oh my God. I mean, they're all, everyone's anchored off of the price from, you know, March of 2021 when speculation peaked. But when you go back and look at the overall scheme of things, I mean, I just go through these things. I can find, you pick up Carvana, maybe he's one of the shiniest of objects, but all the arc like merchandise and nearly we are going to come back to you in a second here. All the arc like merchandise don't get anchored on the fact we're down 70. To me, a lot of that crap looks like it's got a lot further to fall. What would you say, John? 
Well, uh, let's use ARC as the example, and this is not pejorative to one person, but ARC's down about 80% from its peak. And it's, you know, burdened by downward sloping moving averages, and it looks like it's a shelf that's ready to break. The breakout level to the upside for ARC occurred actually in late 2016, early 2017, which was in the low 20s, which would put this down almost around 85 to 90% from its peak. That, to me, is not so extraordinary here. And, and if you're of a certain age, you might remember there used to be a, a, a television show called That Girl, which starred a woman named Marlo Thomas, who was the daughter of Danny Thomas. Her hairstyle is the emblematic example of what these items look like that break out, go to excessive peaks, make this rounded top, and come back down to the bottom of that uh, breakout level again. They're like distribution curves. The distribution curve for ARC is not yet complete. And Carvana, that's an example. That's the anatomy. And find other bubbles. They're going to look like Carvana before it's done. John, and Mark Newman, I know you got to come, but just hold it for a second here. John, I want you to come to a bigger point. This is the old, you know, give a man a fish, you, you, you give him a meal, teach a man a fish, you give him a livelihood. In my experience, John, you may disagree, but I suspect not. Could you explain... And if you're not, if you if you don't want to go, that's fine. I'm not put words in your mouth, but I think we go to the same church on this one. How sometimes again, rather than getting anchored on price, a stock which is down seventy percent could be, might be, and probably is under certain circumstances, a better short down seventy than a stock which hasn't gone down at all. It, has to, it speaks to chart structure, formation, price momentum, etc. And so, you know the role that momentum plays in price structure. And so, you know, I, I know you take the fundamentals and you put them to the side for a second. And we always like to joke about how, you know, what is it, John? Um, fundamental things happen for a technical reason or is it the other way around, right? But but the idea that some people get caught on, oh, I can't short X, Y, Z. You know, all right, let, let's take the electric car company that shall not be named, right? How can I short this thing? It's at 180 down from whatever, 350. It's been cut in half. I would argue very strenuously one from a chart formation perspective, two from a liquidity perspective, macro perspective, three from a company fundamental perspective, the electric car company that shall not be named is a better short now than it was at twice the price. But leaving fundamentals aside, John, could you just speak to technicals and price structure and how people shouldn't get anchored on price and how something like the electric car company now, and you, and I, you know, it pissed me off, but when that thing was going up a year or two ago, you were saying, hey, this can go higher. So can you explain to me that, you know, absolute price levels don't tell a whole story and how a stock which is down a lot can actually be a great short? I actually am going to try to take it in a different way. The stock that's down a lot is actually reflecting that the fundamentals are bad and likely getting worse. The chart reflects the fundamental story. And maybe it was first to go. Maybe the chart was first to turn. But the fundamental story kind of catches up to it. So I would agree with you that the better short is the stock that's already down a lot because it is telling you that the fundamental story is bad and likely to get worse. You know the way the business works. Nobody wants a short 52-week lows, but there are 52-week lows because the fundamentals are bad, not just because the technicals are bad. John, I think that's such an important point that – so many investors need to learn and understand more. Um, 
there are certain uh, ponytailed former uh, NFL football players. Actually, I think one only made the University of Minnesota. I'm not sure if the other one played pro. I don't think he did. Pekoski probably can tell me. Any event, um, and they coined or at least used one of the most expensive sayings, idiotic stockbroker terms out there I've ever heard of in my life. Price is truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Price is not truth. Price is a truth at a point in time, but price is not the truth. You know, was price truth when, uh, you know, Facebook was 350 uh, eight months ago? Was price truth when Qualcomm was 750 in the last day of 1999? I think not. And so people get, you know, again, to take the line from, uh, um, uh, you know, he knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. I mean, John, just maybe just go a little bit more on how when one uses price, I guess maybe when, when momentum is, is, is positive and you don't want to sell new high. And the idea that, you know, sort of, it's sort of in, in the cost, you should get up here. It appeals to one's ego. Everyone wants to be, you know, no one wants to sell anything in a hole. They only want to they want to try to sell things at the highs. But the problem is when something's going up, you never know how high it's going to go up. And when something's going down, you never know how low it's going to go. And as you point out, the fact that it's going up might be telling you that things are getting better, that it's going down, that it's getting worse. So it's nothing about valuation. But, John, could you just speak to in your experience how people confuse, how people misuse price? And I actually think it's one of the big problems with in this new era, they talk about, you know, democratization of finance. Everyone becomes an expert. You know, everyone can become a technician. Just get out your crayons and a ruler and draw some Fibonacci lines and, you know, blah, 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 and you're good to go. Just, it must make your hair catch on fire or head want to explode or whatever metaphor you want to use. When you see the sort of what I would call, I guess, for lack of a better term, amateur technical analysis that goes on at home, how people so misuse it. So, I don't know what part of that you want to address triggers you, doesn't trigger you, or maybe just say, George, I don't know what you're talking about. But I, I just think we're getting into an area here which is just so problematic for so many individual investors at home. Have at it, John. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to answer, try to answer you um, in, in a short fashion. I'm going to turn it over to David Nikoski. I'd like to hear him speak. He's probably heard me enough today. I think that in a business where all of us make a lot of mistakes – and understanding that we're not going to get them all right and we could get something wrong and then it turns out to be right. It's just the way the business works. If we look at every one of our charts with either a 40-week moving average or a 200-day moving average and figured out where is the item in relation to that moving average and what is the slope of that moving average, I think our, I'm talking about me now, my mistakes would be fewer. When we go against that little dictum, then I think we make more mistakes. You know, when you try to buy something because you think it's bottomed, but it's below a downward sloping 200-day, you might get it right. But the odds are that you're not going to. And I think it was Jesse Livermore who said, I'm, I'm going to uh, attribute this to him, um, the only people who sell uh, tops and buy bottoms are liars um, because it's that difficult to do. But if you use the slope of the moving average and where the item is in relation to that moving average, you'll make, I believe, I'll make fewer mistakes. And, you know, Meta, Facebook, has been a problem since earlier this year, earliest in the year, when it got below its 40-week moving average and it crested, which was before the, the first big down leg. But even if you didn't sell the first big down leg, you certainly could have sold it there at around 270, uh, 225. 
you'd still be okay, I think. So I'm going to leave it to David. Thanks for your time. I spoke too much. George, always a pleasure. Thanks, John. Hey, Newman, you want to jump in? Yeah, hey, I just wanted to touch on something. And this is, um, you know, George, you said it before, and I think it's really, really critical. The misallocation of capital is what has gotten us to this spot where everything is distorted, right? And I'm going to not talk my book here just as much as pointing it out to people the way I'm seeing it. And the uh, record level low interest rates that we had over the past decade has created this bubble. George, you mentioned the NFTs, the SPACs, all that stuff. I do think that ESG has been a major contributor to misallocation of capital. And now we had Sam Bankman-Fried marry crypto and ESG because he used a lot of ESG and high ESG ratings on FTX. And we, the bubble has been burst now. John pointed it out with Carvana. He's right. Tech is still very overcrowded. I think that the distortion that's being created, and you can see now BlackRock's on the hot seat, Larry Fink, Vanguard is too. I think this unwind, like you all said, George and, and John agree, like the, the trajectory and the pathway is lower. And I think the bubble has burst. And jo George, you said it with ARC. Nobody realizes yet because they're still piling in. I think we are at the beginning of a massive bubble unwind here. And I think that going forward, it's going to be extremely hard to navigate for most people. 23, 24 going forward. I think that the ESG unwind, because rates are higher and not really going down extensively from here, that misallocation of capital, those errors that were made at the corporate and investing level are just going to be magnified going forward. I think everyone really has to know what they own in 23 and 24 going forward. I just wanted to share that because I think the risks are very lopsided going forward. Very. Thanks, Mark. All right, so Neely, you triggered us, and we kind of like went off the deep end and answered a question. You put the cat amongst the pigeons, but I want to come back to you, Neely. I know we've got Philip up here and Baron, who we're going to get to in a minute. But Neely, I wanted you to weigh in a little bit more. You asked the question about money going to the wrong places, and we went off the deep end in our answers to you. But let's come back to the consumer, Neely. Um, in how's it looking to you? Pointed out a couple months ago that you know things started to get better, largely at about the time gasoline prices started to go down. Oil prices continue to plumb new lows. So, but you also pointed out in the space the other day how, given the calendar, we had you know five weekends instead of four, retailers may panic. Blah blah blah. So, how's the consumer looking? And then I, you know, I see stuff. I mean, airlines have good numbers; they're doing all right. But the cruise ships blow up and blah blah blah. So, maybe it's by category, and there are a lot of disparate trends. But I mean, I don't know. To the extent, just give us a, a rant, a sort of a free association on the consumer, Neely. So I yield to you, Neely. Please, the floor is yours. I will share some perspectives with you all, um, and thank you, George. The just for just a little bit. George knows this about me a little bit better. Background: um, used to head the consumer research practice over on the sell side over at. Piper Jaffrey, which is now Piper Sandler, left there six years ago. I now advise uh, directly CEOs and boards about um, matters of the consumer economy um, all through an economic lens. Uh, we're often in boardrooms talking about three and five year type trends, but obviously cognizant of the near term as well. So uh, it's, a, it's a very bespoke research practice is what we do. So here's a couple things to keep in mind. 
all consumer purchases begin with an economic reality. Like every single purchase begins and considers an economic reality. You can only spend what you have in your pocket or what you see that you believe you will have in the future. Okay. A la credit. Like that is a fact about consumer behavior. And so it, we can have the conversations about like all the different disparate sort of uh, categories that we see out there. But the simple truth is all consumer purchases begin with an economic reality. The question is, is is the economic reality the same for all consumers? The answer is no, right? We actually have a tale of many different consumers right now, which has made 2022 and looking into 2023 a little bit more difficult. Candidly, the job was extraordinarily easy in 2020. (laughs) Like that was an easy year for this girl, right? It's like, okay, well, $2 trillion of direct stimulus payments. Everyone's at home and only people can buy things goods online. I got this on lock, right? Like that was easy. This has been far more difficult. And I think the thing that I keep coming back to, and, and I think in some way John keeps referring to this, and uh, Newman, I think you've also made references to this in some past spaces, if I'm re- recalling correctly. Small business, I think, is what's getting overlooked. You know, when John, you were making that comment around, like, you know, is the Fed even talking to a civilian? You know, they really don't understand small business uh, from my vantage point. And we do advise. Um, CEOs from time to time as they go and have conversations, you know, with their federal, uh, uh, with their district um, Fed Reserve banks and what have you. So we do have a sense of what the questions are being asked and how they um, advise and are advised. But the, 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 the concern I have is you have about 32 million small businesses in the United States of America. They employ somewhere around 60 million people. Those 60 million people are consumers out of about 300 million consumers in the United States of America, 150 million consuming households is generally the way you look at it. It's not insignificant. And the NFIB numbers, the National Federation of Independent Business, they're out with their data every single month. It's been completely uninspiring all year, and it has not really improved And the concern we have is that small business owners have run out of their funding. You know, PPP won back in uh, the payroll protection plan, which was, um, you know, a a must plan. It basically, it's funny, people are like, it bailed out small business. And I'm like, actually, I think it bailed out the government because they didn't have the means to basically say, oh, yeah, you can just fire 24 million people overnight. We're going to go ahead and give them all their unemployment benefits overnight. Like, it was a way for um, kind of win-win-ish, you know, for both small business and for government, because the government did not actually have the ability to push through physically that number of claims. And they're like, you you hang on to your people, we'll cover you, right? Because um, uh, it would have been more than 24 million people let go. You know, it would have been like 60 million people probably let go or something to that effect or even more um, because of shutting down the economy. So that was uh, PPP1, you know, a forgivable loan, essentially. You just had to keep your people in your payroll. Uh, PPP2, uh, same same gig. Pretty much if you got one, you pretty much got two. Then you had uh, the EIDL loans, the emergency disaster loans, which just went into repayment for most beginning this last October. Interestingly, we're seeing, at least in our local level, more and more businesses putting out notifications saying that, you know, they're closing up shop by the end of December. Um, We think that that's a confluence of events, including, you know, rent forbearance. They were probably not paying their rent when they should have been paying the rent for some of these lesser run small businesses. And now uh, back rent 
it's not just current rent, it's back rent plus current rent, you know, is catching up on them in addition to the fact that demand is slowing. Um, and so we're, we're very, we're swimming a lot, George, actually in the small business data, because we think that's actually going to be the weak link to the economy that no one is really talking to or looking to. Um, and we can absolutely have a conversation around like holiday and, you know, you know, I'm, I keep teasing out to you a little bit of our perspective for what 2023, the roller coaster of what consumerism and capacity to consume will be in the spring of 2023. Um, but, you know, I, it's really what's on my heart, a small business. So, Neely, what do you tell your your clients? I mean, it's so hard right now. Never easy, but you go back over the uh, since the pandemic, how this has played out. There's a huge shift in consumption patterns from services to goods. Demand was pulled forward on top of it because all the stimulus checks. The supply chain became encumbered. Inventories got drawn down. So orders increased. More and more income got built up. Asset prices went up, stocks, bonds, etc. Then we had the so-called bullwhip effect, which you and I've been talking about now for nine months. You know, companies were ordering not just to satisfy elevated levels of demand, but also need to replenish inventories. And then inevitably, demand starts to slow. But it takes a while for supply chains to respond to ease for all those shipments that were sitting on container ships floating around the Pacific or outside the port of Long Beach. Then the supply arrives. So now, okay, you know, you know, I spoke about Lululemon on Friday, inventory up 85%, but the levels of excess inventory are, they're everywhere one real tail should the other 30 40 50%. And it's pretty clear we're mean reverting now. Yes, there's still excess stock of financial assets overall. But those at the lowest end of the socioeconomic strata are already down to where they were pre-pandemic. The savings rates plunged to like the multi-year lows, but people still have excess savings. However, uh, their balance sheets are now starting to get worse. As stock prices fall, housing prices fall. But again, on the other hand, you know, debt service obligation levels are, are, are very high, or the people's ability to service their debt obligations are ex- extremely in healthy positions. So there are a lot of like opposing forces here. As I like to, you know, play on words with Alan Greenspan, if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. So what do you say to your clients with all that? I mean, you're on the one hand, on the other hand, like, what do you do if you're a, a consumer facing? Uh, company, you know, consumer goods or retail. What do you tell your clients, Jimmy? <laughs> the advantage I have is they typically, uh, you know, cater to a particular income demographic, right? So I can cater my comments <laughs> precisely and tailor them because all of our analysis is done by income demographics. Um, and so it's, it's like, you know, that, which makes these spaces a little more difficult. Cause I'm like, well, who do you want to talk about? Right. Um, because it's not all the same. But I would say, you know, there is at the 
okay I'll, I'll frame it up at a very high level this way and this is just new just trying to cut through some of the nuance if you are in the very low end of the economy kind of in that under 30,000 you know annual household income you're generally cared for through government transfer payments um, both at the state and at the federal level um, I absolutely care about the welfare of this demographic to be very very clear but whether you're looking at the wage labor end, um, they are benefiting, or the um, programs afforded to them, they are benefiting. I am, that is not the group, not the quote the dollar discount crew, right? That we're we're, we're worried about. Um, nor are we really worried about the upper, you know, the true upper income. Kind of think of you know the two hundred plus k annual household income and higher. These are the market aware group of people. Uh, typically, they are fine with market fluctuations. It's when the um, it's when job loss starts to creep up tremendously and fast, you know, kind of the velocity of job loss starts to creep up in their in their uh, in their areas. And I know there's been some tech layoffs, but, you know, generally speaking, they'll get rehired probably outside of tech industry and into other industry and absorbed. Um, you know, like there's a ton of healthcare companies that could use a lot of software engineers right now, right? Um, but they are, they're fine, right? They're fine unless we see some sort of massive job. It's the middling group that we are most concerned about, kind of thinking that 50K to 100K sort of um, demographic, which, you know, in the, in the context of consumerism, it's not an insignificant group of people. I mean, you have, if you look at kind of adjusted gross income of 50K to 100K, um, you have probably, I'll give you actually like a pretty precise number. Just give me one second. 16 plus, you know, it's probably 25 to 30 million filers by the IRS standards. That's not insignificant, you know, of a group of people. And, and that's the group that we're most concerned about as we navigate ahead to 2023 for one particular reason, and that is it's the student loan repayment. We, the thing that has been overlooked time and time again this year is people have just thought that this is going to go away. And it's been a political move. I have no problem saying that. It doesn't matter who's in power. You know, things like this programs are used politically all the time. It was a political move. It was a midterm play. Um, you know, even within the Democrat Party, it, you know, Pelosi herself has indicated she knew that the constitutionality of that executive order, um, or rather the act under the HEROES Act, was very likely not constitutional. It's gone for a constitutional challenge. The Supreme Court is going to listen to this case in February, and the judgment will be delivered sometime between February or um, when they deliver all their uh, typical judgments in June and July. And somewhere in that time frame, we're very likely going to hear that that act is going to lack a uh, constitutional basis. It will be, quote, immediately nullified if that is found that way. And if that's the case, then payment processors are going to send out letters pronto. And then all of a sudden, we've got to start repaying $1.7 trillion of debt. Why do I care about this? I care about this because... I'm, I'm, you know, when you talk about being triggered, I'm kind of triggered. I'm actually a pretty calm, cool, you know, Midwest Christian girl, right? But I get triggered when people start putting out charts and they're like, see, delinquencies are at all time low. And I'm like, well, it's because we 
don't actually have $1.7 trillion of debt <laughs> currently being factored into those those lovely charts that you're putting out there, right? Like it's, it's, it's a, it's a false narrative. If you don't consider what the ramifications of what it is to reintroduce $1.7 trillion of debt back onto the balance sheets of obligations. Um, right now you can go get a loan. If you have student loan debt, I don't, I don't, I don't have student loan. I just know this because I've studied this. You can go out and get a loan. It won't even show up in your credit report. It's like it doesn't exist. So how many people have been lent to since March of 2020, since student loan debt has been in forbearance, that the calculation would be different, right? Had that actually been in there. And this is, this is the prudence that, you know, this is the prudence of Adam Smith, okay, that we need in terms of really understanding what it is that we're studying. You know, there's a quote, a Smith quote, it's something to the effect of like a prudent man um, always studies seriously and earnestly to understand whatever he professes to understand and not merely to persuade other people that he understands it. And it's that, that, that earnest understanding that what I think we call intellectual curiosity and, or um, even moral bravery that I think is lacking right now, even by some of the people who I consider friends and peers we really need to understand what's truly on the balance sheets of the consumer and that 1.7 trillion is coming back. So at least that's our view. So that's, that's the downside to 2023. As you know, I think there are some potential bright spots that could mitigate that as we navigate forward, but it will get very nuanced by income demographic, George. Neely, that's absolutely superb. Um, I know you're going to trigger a lot of people with your remarks, so please just stay up there. Oh God, shit. Someone, Hey, Ro, can you call security? We got the mini, got the Minnesota crowd in here now. They, they pulled this stunt. You know, <laughs> they pulled this stunt on Friday. Now they're back again. So we got Neely and we got Nikoski. And I'm reliably informed they actually know each other. They work together. So these Minnesota folks, and they come across as being wholesome and nice and everything, but they have this ulterior motive. But anyway, Dave, always good to see you. And um, I lo love that you're back. And... You and Roki, two of my faves. Um, so, like John said, he talked too much. So, I, I, I think, Dave, you're largely agreeing with John, but maybe I don't know how he triggered you, what you agree with, disagree with, but, Dave, we yield to you. Go for it, man. Good to see you. Thank you. And for us Minnesotans, if you think you hate us now, wait till you get to know us. Um, John, it's a pleasure to be in the room with you. Uh, great. John does great work. Anyone that's not following him should follow him. I've seen John's work throughout the years of uh, being on the sell side. Um, you know, I, I agree with John wholeheartedly and I've, you know, thrown up quite a few charts of, uh, you know, the regional banking index, uh, KRE. And, you know, it, it's not something I, I say looks good. You know, I, most people know that I was a proponent of Brazil earlier in the year um, after the election. I said, it's, it's not something I want to mess with. Uh, it's got a huge diamond formation. I've never seen more diamonds in a market. A lot of technicians won't mark them up, but I, you know, I've marked them up throughout the years. I've never seen more than I've seen currently um, in individual stocks and in individual indexes. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I also see and I, I came into the room late, so it may have been talked about, you know, the, a lot of the small caps, micro caps are not confirming you know, the latest rally and, you know, it was the large caps that moved up on 
the U.S. dollar pulling back. And I, I do think the dollar has peaked and uh, much I agree with everything wholeheartedly with what John said. So it's great to see, you know, some confirmation of, you know, by someone that I admire and respect uh, to, you know, significantly. Um, It's just, it's, it's great coming into these rooms and that George, you know, I can't tell you how much you get up here and, and get everyone together and plan out, you know, from what they're seeing, uh, I've been in a number of rooms where I get experts on an individual industry that I'm talking about, and they come up and they just, you know, they support most of the conclusions you've come to, you know, from a technical basis. So I, I love that, and it just makes me feel that much more confident when I when I see what you know industry you know leadership uh, is saying. Um, so uh, great room, love it, Neely. Hi from uh, Northern Minnesota right now. And uh, I hope you're doing well. Um, that's, it, let me know if you have, anyone has a question as well. Oh, Dave, you up the road? We can do Minnesota talk, George, if you want. You know, this is like the, wait, now wait. we need to start okay, talking. Okay, okay. So Neely, so wait, wait, Neely and Nikos, got to ask you guys something. If I get the Wisconsin crowd, is there like a thing, can you please explain for those of us who don't live in your neck of the woods. What is the deal between Wisconsin and Minnesota people? You guys like enemies or allies? We, we go over to Wisconsin for the cheese, the beer and the, uh, you know, I, I think that's all it is. And then they come here, they come, they come to Minnesota for their health care. I think that's kind of it. They have the lower property taxes. We have the services. <laughs> and, and Neely, what would they, what would Wisconsin guy people say about, if we got Jeff Garbaza in here or any of the Wisconsin people or Chanos, what would they say about the Minnesota people? Like the Minnesota people kind of look down their nose at the Wisconsin people? I don't know. I inherited it over here. And for what it's worth, I married a Lions fan. So, you know, like I don't even fit into the football culture over here. I just know that I have the most loyal and faithful husband because if you can be loyal to the Lions, you can be loyal to me. <laughs> All right, so Nikoski, let's go with some of the things John was talking about. Um, what, I guess, um, John wanted to beg off on energy. He didn't have a strong, a longer, I mean, he's been negative short run as you have. But to give him credit, I think he's been even more negative than you have on energy. So we're going to score that one rogue. I'm not trying to pit you guys against you. I'm just trying to figure out where the points of agreement are, like concentric circles, Venn diagram, what like two smart guys are agreeing on, what we disagree on. So... But I want to go to the energy call because I'm really intrigued. I'm looking to buy energy again. And John's like, he doesn't want to look around too many corners. Um, do you have one of those extended telescopes that goes around corners, John? Like, are you willing to say yes, but longer term, you still like the long term setup? So, like, maybe just flush that energy a little bit more, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I, I still believe we're in a secular bull market in energy. You know, knowing what the economy is going to do is is one thing. I've, I, I pull out some old research, you know, back from, you know, from 94 to 2000 to 2008 and 2009. And I've addressed this on a call the other day that got plenty of laughs. You know, the Fed suffers from Munchausen syndrome, right? They get the patient near death and then revive it. And everyone thinks, you know, wow, they saved the market. You know, they always seem to pull a rabbit out of the hat somewhere. And um, in the confines of energy, you know, I was I was bullish January of 21 on uh, calling a secular bull market. 
um, based up upon, you know, re- long-term relative strength trends that we were seeing. Um, you know, I got more bearish in, in a call with you probably right around 118 or so and saying, we, you know, if we pull back to the 200-day, that's certainly possible. Um, I got a little, you know, heated up on, on energy and, and saying this is the time to look at it. You know, and I'm looking at the relative strength trends coming back to 2019. You know, trying to, trying to call, in, I, I'm happy to lose a 5% upside you know, before saying I'm actually bullish, but, you know, we should be finding some support in here. Um, if China is opening up and again, you, you're seeing, you know, uh, as I've mentioned on a number of calls, the BDRY index, you're, you're starting to see some of the metals, whether it's, you know, Chinese iron ore is absolutely vertical. Um, you're seeing nickel bottoming, you're see, you know, so I, I, I'm going to say I absolutely, and I said it, you know, probably five, six weeks ago that, you know, China was bottoming. Um, I know no one wants to go there and got in rooms with, you know, 700 people and said, raise your hand if you would buy the emerging markets. And all I kept hearing was, you know, sovereign debt crisis and the real sovereign debt crisis happened in the UK. Um, you know, Joe, but, 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 but Dave, on the China thing, I'll, I'll yeah. try to clean this up a little bit. No, I, that's okay. No, no, no. I, I, I had cruder analogies i use i'm going to try to clean this up for uh this is gonna be pg rated um you know let me put it this way there are certain countries i just won't invest in and it's not because i've gotten burned i mean look we all like to gravitate towards areas where we've had success and because it gives us a false sense of confidence in what we're doing but you know like just as, just as a general rule you know i don't invest in russian stocks period why? I don't trust the accounting. I don't invest in Chinese stocks. Why? I don't trust the accounting. I will invest in Brazilian stocks, as screwed up as the macro is, just because they have a rule of law and you can trust the institutions. You can't say the same thing about China or Russia. All right. So to maybe draw the analogy to like a, I guess, a restaurant, for lack of a better one, there's certain restaurants that, you know, maybe have a history of uh, a lot of health code violations and people getting food poisoning. And yeah, if you're lucky, you go in this time, maybe, you know, they got a new chef and they cleaned up the kitchen with Lysol before they cooked the food. And you won't get sick. But, you know, enough people have gotten sick in that restaurant over time. It's just not a good place to go. And yeah, you can go to your favorite restaurant, maybe get a crappy meal. But, you know, it's a better risk adjusted return just to go into the restaurant where, you know, they don't routinely suffer health code violations. And so I just have an antipathy towards investing in places where there's no rule of law. You can't trust the institutions. The culturists have scammed the foreigners, and I'm talking Russian equities generally and Chinese equities. You know, there was a great chart, Dave, the other day. I'll, I'll retweet it. I'm sure you've seen it. Over, th- And you may say it's the opportunity. And, yeah, tactically, you may be right. And then I don't want to get to an argument here. This is just I'm trying to build. A good, it's more constructive to have a sort of you – know, it's multiple time frames and, and have a Venn diagram, concentric circles, where it could be short-term we agree, long-term we disagree. Like if you say, hey, you know what, buy China, whatever, it looks good, yada, yada, yada. I'd say, okay – that's a rental and that's not for me. And then I would turn around and show you the 30 year chart of Chinese equities and prove to you that over 30 years, Chinese stocks have been a loser's game, a loser's game. And yeah, they could go up another 50% over the next six months. I'm not going to argue about that, but it's just like, I don't want to go into the restaurant where too many people 
have gotten food poisoning in the, over the years. I, I don't know. How would you respond to that, Dave? Uh, it, those are great points, and you would you would certainly be in the majority up until you know six weeks ago. Um, you know, I as a chartist, I get to remove those emotions. I get to sure. remove you know the aspect. I I get paid to point out things that you know are inflecting bullishly, and you know that is. I, you know, whether you like it or not, that's what I do. And no, yeah, so, David, I didn't take it as an yeah. attack. Please don't take it offensively. I'm just no, saying, no, I, you know what? It is what it is. No, no, and, no, but I'm yeah. saying a different way. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. Just if you get fun, uh, I'll say respectfully with love, my brother. If yeah. I go to a fundamentalist and ask him to make up a technical story. Yeah. Eh, it's not what he's good at, right? Yeah. I don't it, go it, to a technician to make the fundamental story. It's what I want to do. I want to integrate everything. So, so you see, you might say, well, you know what? Arc is inflecting. I'm just making something up. Okay. Pets.com yeah. is inflecting. You know, Carvana is inflecting positively. You know, it went from. You won't ever hear that from my mouth. Okay? No, but no, but no, <laughs> what I'm saying is, but what I'm saying is, so okay, let's take an absurd, let's take an absurd example and make it real. Okay. So let's take, and I pick any piece of crap you want. Take Carvana or Arc or whatever. Okay, take Carvana, all right? You know, Enron didn't go to zero in a straight line. Yeah. All right, okay? So at any point in time, there are probably many, I don't know, how many, multi, how many multiple rally failed attempts there were in Enron where it started to reflect up, all right? So the Nigerian brothers, oops, and I said them by name, were price is truth. Oh, it's going up, it's going up. And if you bought the one-month call option, the one-week call options, you would have made 392% in the last four days annualized. Please subscribe to our Discord service for $99 a month. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, so, absolutely. So, yeah. so, so, so how do you differ? I, and that, that's what a lot of FinTwit is about, okay? Yeah. And, you, and you get bozos who know the price of, 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 of everything and the value of nothing, all right? And, oh, see, I told you to buy Carvana. You're a Carvana hater. You didn't buy it, okay? So how do you differentiate, again, multiple time frames? It's, it's to know what you own. So on the one hand, yeah, you know what, hold on, let me finish here. Know what you own, but you got to look at the chart. But yeah, look at the chart, but know what you own. So how do you integrate those two, Dave? Well, you know, you, you can certainly see in, in a chart. And when you see it across a whole spectrum of equities or a market, you know, the chances that China as a entire market going to zero is a lot less than, you know, looking at an individual stock like in Enron or Credit Suisse, right? Um, I don't think China's going away. You might not like the fundamentals. You may not buy it. And I'm not telling you that, gee, if you don't, if you don't like China and it's going up, you know, we see, you know, like, why would you buy, you know, Luna or FTX, right? You know, unfortunately, those things make a bottom and go up and you're, you know, you can say all you want in terms of bad things, but sometimes the market is the market and you can fight it all you want and you you can stay out of china that's fine there's a lot in the u.s market that is great but me looking internationally and i cover 43 markets by geographic region by you know sector by industry i have you know probably ten thousand stocks in my international product you know i have to just be open-minded about <laughs> what's going on in the world you know and when they, i hear that and dave and if i interrupt commercial yeah. message yeah and that's why i mean dave i'm really glad you're back in the space i urge everyone to follow dave and reach out to him get a trial from him you know fabulous service i have no commercial relationship with dave what i like about Dave is he looks at the weight of the evidence i don't know anybody who follows as many markets as he does and it's you know 
the objective truth sometimes can uh, trigger oneself, especially when you have to make the, turn the chart upside down to make it support your, your own belief system. So I urge everyone to reach out to Dave and, 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 and take a take a trial of the service. I think you really find it worthwhile. Sorry, Dave, I just had to plug you. Go Thank ahead. you, George. You know, so you know, I have to look around the the globe, and you know, and this is. This is the problem I've seen throughout my 35 years doing technical analysis is you, you get into a hot area of the market, you know, growth outperforms value over seven years and everyone wants to play the growth stocks on the way down. There's a lot of value stocks out there. You know, the unweighted RCD, uh, unweighted consumer discretionary is far outperforming XRT, which is predominantly weighted by, you know, names like Amazon, which is right near its 52 week low and two, two and a half, three year low. Um, you know, looking, looking, you know, to looking in the field to find out which wheat is growing, right? So you can separate the wheat from the shaft is, you know, there's a lot of names out there in the U.S. that are working. And, you know, we do we work diligently every week going through 3000 charts, marking them up in terms of sector and uh, what their pattern is, you know, based on technicals, bottom fishing, positive developing, positive trending. And, you know, with that, you, you can at least go out and see that the indexes are not telling the truth what's underlying the market. And I'm not going to lie to you and say the Russell 2000 looks great because it looks bad. It didn't confirm this last rally up. You know, I'm I would say I'm structured more towards we're not getting confirmation by, you know, micro caps and small caps, which have a tendency you know, to lead a rally, not to uh, not rally. So I want that. I want to see that confirmation um, within those. But again, there are you know Burlington Resources, Ross Stores, TJ Maxx. You know, I went into retailers last night to go Christmas shopping. I can't believe that retailers actually don't have sales. I walked into Dick's. There was nothing on sale. I mean, and if it was, it was something you certainly don't need. Um, you know, hey, it's, 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 it's a day right here, yeah. right now. We don't have to get individual picks per se, but yeah, you know how it is. Usually, in a given year, there are a few key decisions, sector, maybe a couple stocks here, there, whatever. But there are a few decisions along the course of the year in, in in the context of hundreds that you make, which make or break your year. So, as you sit here right here, right now, if you had to write, you know, a year ahead of piece or whatever, um, for those in the room, you know, trying to figure out what to do with their finances. What would you say? I mean, you know, long, I mean, maybe you don't have a strong view on the market. Maybe it's like, you know what? I want to be in certain parts of the market. Are there? So, so do you, what are your, I guess, what do you say your three most high conviction views? What do, what do you have strongest beliefs in at this point, Dave? My highest conviction views would be that we are seeing at least, you know, when it, when it comes to the drop in the dollar, we're seeing emerging countries actually, um, you know, starting to strengthen. Um, I, I think that's a positive sign for the emerging markets, which have underperformed the U.S. markets for over 12 years and dramatically. I mean, there is no foreign country that has the upside that we have had. They're extremely cheap. And again, you can look at China and say, I don't want that. But there's other countries to choose from. Um, so I, I do believe that the U.S. leadership as a whole um, in terms of the indexes are, are shifting towards the emerging markets. And then it's, you know, pick your spots and the ones you trust. Um, I, I hear from everyone, just as George, you have said you don't want China. Well, that's fine. Cross that one off your list. You know, I'm fine with that. But this is what the trends are showing. Um, I so, can't okay. change them. I right. can get so, a wider right. marker. So, 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 so right. you, you, you like emerge EEM will outperform. 
Um, what else? This thought, I mean, I don't want to put words in your yeah. mouth, but but a lie, Ted, I have to think, does that also mean that, for instance, the dollar is going down, gold is going up? I mean, what, what other thoughts do you have that go with that? Well, when you look at the material sector, as I said, you're getting a lot of the basic metals are bottoming. And I, I think that's bullish. You know, I see a huge trend to onshoring when you look at the engineering and construction companies. Um, you know, you look at the fabricators of steel, those that make specialized steel, you know, whether it's a, and, 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 you know, can I mention names, George? Is that all right? You know, steel yeah, dynamics. Yeah, Dave, Dave, Dave yeah. You, could, you could mention them anytime you want. I was just trying to give you a wider yeah. berth. You don't want to get specific. Go ahead. Go ahead and mention Yeah, them. so you're, you're seeing this big shift to onshoring. And onshoring is going to happen at any cost. It's your in talking to some steel uh, people that entered the room uh, yesterday uh, in one of the spaces that I was on. You know, you're hearing that you know iron ore is is creeping up, but not at the same magnitude that you're seeing the steel fabricators like commercial metals, steel dynamics. If you look at you know MCOR, Fluor, um, and NVEE, um, you know they are reflecting that. You know, firms are starting to engineer and construct very large industrial complexes. Um, I think that's taking place in offshoring, whether it's going to India or Mexico. Um, you know, I, I don't track all of that. I know that China has put $20 billion into Mexico in the last 20 years. And I think it's like 62% of that is the, in the last two years to get around tariffs. Because if they can import from Mexico without having the tariffs that the administration, Trump and or Biden has put in place, you're, you're starting to see that money is flowing into uh, areas of the country or the world globally with much cheaper energy prices. So, you know, I, I think that's a global shift that we're seeing. And that's, you know, again, I, I think I've always, you know, alluded to this in my career that, you know, the U.S. is an imperialist country, but not imperialism by taking over a country, but instead going in using financial imperialism. And we see that with in terms of dollar lending, euro dollar lending. And what that what we do is we try to find the the country that can make the product the cheapest. We did it to Japan in the 70s and 80s. We did it to China, you know, 2000 to 2020. And now we're seeing that shift out of China because of, of the relationship that we're having. So, so Okay, so so EM, you think the U.S. is going to underperform. Let's just keep it real tight here so we can get some questions in. Um, just thoughts on um, three questions. One, the dollar. Two, gold. Three, what would you stay away from? What would you short? Yeah, I, I think if we get a significant decline in the equity markets right now, you may see dollar become the safe haven asset for for a trade. And that the, I, I think that the U.S. dollar is peaked. I think we're heading down. Gold, silver, you know, I, throughout my career, you know, I've been a bull and bear on gold and silver and precious metals. You know, it, there's a time to do it and there's a time not to. And I, I, I would say that those are structurally absolutely bullish. And I think that confirms the U.S. dollar is going to decline. And again, I'm not withstanding that, you know, there's going to be a short term move, perhaps in the dollar to the upside, just to scare everyone that's bullish in in precious metals right now. Because, yeah, I think technicians are, are certainly in that camp um, by far, you know, over anyone else. Um, what was your last question, George? Yeah, what, what I mean, you have likes, you have don't likes. Like, what, what would you tell people to stay away from? to avoid like, like, like what is leadership on the what's on your sell list what's on your sell list or short list or avoid list? well i i'm not not bullish crypto 
I, I'm I'm bearish per, perhaps more of the large cap. Um, so, so so large, large cap, cap tech, tech fang all that kind of crap. You'd stay yes. away from. Yeah, yes. okay. I would say stay away. So, from so, so do you think a portfolio broadly diversified is sort of the EM that you like, plus throw in some uh, uh, the base metals stocks and some gold? I'm just thinking about like you know high sharp ratio trade. So let's say we're long the the EM that the Nikoski likes. We're we're long some of the base metals. We're long some gold. And we're short fang against that. You think that's a winning trade for 2023? I would say that's the winning trade for the first six months. Got it. All right. And and then we'll look through, you know, what, what, I mean, there are, believe it or not, there are tech companies that do look good. So, you know, in, in this, as I always say, you know, it's not a stock market, it's a market of stocks and finding 100%. those companies uh, that, that are outperforming their peer group and, you know, relative strength to me is is what i do and you know i can look at a chart of nvidia versus lscc for instance lscc looks bullish like you wouldn't even know a bear you know a bear yeah, no 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 exactly place. so 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 when you, you look at the fang names just cover them up no one told you what they were yeah. they just i mean yeah. i mean when, when, when you like for instance you look at the electric car company that should not be named bearish to you bearish Absolutely. Yeah. How, I, I, how about that phone company, which is 7% of the, sorry, the, the cell phone company, which is 7% of the S&P. How does that look to you? That one I don't like. I think it isn't, isn't, uh, it, I believe Apple is worth like 480 names of the S&P 500. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's, it's worth, I think it's combined. worth twice, I think it's still worth like twice the energy sector or some crazy number yeah, like that. So All it, right, so, and, and Dave, last I want you to stay on stage, but I just want people to hear names. Dave, do you have a, do you have a product for retail investors that won't break the bank? Yes, we do. And we, we can, you know, um, discuss what those products are. You can go to our website, vermilioncap.com, um, and, you know, put put in your name and your contact info, and we'll get a hold of you and discuss, like, what your needs may be, and we can, you know, package something out of, you know, yeah, what Because Dave, I mean, just for those that know him, I mean, Vermilion, um, they service a lot of the biggest institutions in the world. You know, guys play, pay some serious money tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars for the product but um you know dave has a product can help investors of all all uh, sizes and i think dave I think there's a real need for your services amongst the uh, individual investors so it's great that you're in these spaces and uh, you know i urge everyone to reach out to dave and take a trial of the service i've known dave for i don't know 25 years or thereabouts and for absolutely first rate so dave please stay up there there's some others have been patiently waiting one to get in here i'm sure you'll get some questions okay so we're going to do an order here we're going to do my friend Baron, and then Philip, and then Andrew. Baron, good to see you, man. I know you've been waiting patiently. Please unmute yourself, Baron. Good morning, transitioning. Good afternoon, everybody. I have one. I just have one thing to say. It's uh, my little input on the uh, what's going to cause banks some stress. Uh, I believe, at least, one of the things, and that's going to be uh, what we discuss, which is the implosion of the SPACs and all these zombie companies, which are obviously not cash flow positive and struggling to stay alive right now as stocks squeeze them out. Some of these companies are already getting squeezed out. Obviously Carvana, CarMax, Vroom. I can just go down the list. And these are just the big names that we know about. I think this is going to be our tidal wave and the water's just receding. That's all I got to say right now. Yeah, Baron. I mean, there's that, that, that I'd, I'd file that under the head, more general heading of, you know, I want you to riff on this a little bit, Baron. File that away to the more general heading of just misallocation of capital and whether it's SPACs particularly or it's private equity. I mean, gee, lever up a company into a recession 
with floating interest rates? 5X levered? What could possibly go whole, wrong? What could possibly I've got a go whole wrong? list of things. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I so, about... so, so, yeah, so Baron, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I, want to I want you to go for it. Let's get away from just SPACs. It's much bigger than SPACs. SPACs, private equity, real estate. Let me just go down the list. So have a go at it, Baron. I know you're similarly inclined as I am. So, so, so floor is yours. Go for it, Baron. It's, something's going to be the trigger. As FTX was the trigger to, to crypto collapse, something's going to be the trigger to this, whether it's the commercial real estate combined with you know SPACs imploding. Once the news starts getting out about all of that, the megas are already a week. The megas are going to start coming down, as you know, others have said in the room here. Amazon's notably and honestly said, even Bezos came out ahead of time warning everybody that they're they're doing bad. They're the only company out there not fluffing the books right now. And their P ratio, it's going to come down. And there's other information that provides uh, for that. But it's just going to be a tidal wave. I, I believe it's just going to be a, I hate to come in here like a, you know, a doom and gloom but uh, with this, but it is a reality check that something is there. And the, the Fed's padding the market for this. It's coming anytime in the next, in the next few, well, few weeks, several, say eight weeks. Yeah. So, uh, Baron, do you, um, you know, life is not linear. Nothing goes in a straight line up or down. But do you think this counter trend rally we've seen since mid-October can extend or do you think it's done? We are exchanging contracts right now. So they're going to they're gonna play some manipulation, drop it down, sell it off briefly to 30, 50-ish, whatever, and then pop it back up for Fed Chair Powell where they then run it green if they want to on the day as they have been lately and then drop it the following day. And then we're going back down for that negative 20%. We're following the downward channel. There's no doubt about it. I've, I fought, I fought this over the year, uh, following the TA, et cetera. But um, we are respecting it in every way, shape, and form. Whatever the news is, whatever the excuse is, you can't argue that fact. We're all going to get to the mindset that we're following this channel. That's the soft landing. We're going up. We're going down. We're going up. We're going down. And the narrative is just whatever excuse they they come out with. Right. So do you think, um, so the, the, the chart pattern, the, 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 the tidal wave of liquidity going out, you think all the other stuff is noise. Like we're basically, the, the sucker's going down. That's your big picture view. So, so the upside, I don't put words in my mouth. I'm just trying to understand you. So from a risk reward basis from here, a little bit up and a lot of down, is that kind of the way you're looking at it? A lot of down. It's going to chop back and forth, back and forth into the earnings recession and collapse of these companies. And, and I think, again, I think and, Powell's and, going to let the, the market do the work for him initially with softer rates. But it's not a narrative of ever increasing rates anymore. It's a narrative is the destruction's there and we're, we're rolling into the recession. We're going from inflation to recession. And now the now things are going to change where the dollar may drop. And people are going to say, oh, well, dollar's dropping. Stock should go up. The stock's going to go down with it. So... Not trying to hold you to a data or a price, but just trying to put a little bit of context here on this order of magnitude. Uh, I don't know, three months from now, six months from now, let's not go out of here. Nobody knows. Nobody even, I'm not going to ask you next week. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen on Tuesday or Wednesday with CPI and Powell. Nobody knows, right? But as I'm always reminded, what's interesting is, is not the news, but the reaction to the news. But going out beyond the very short run, I mean, the way I look at it, I have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, my two cents. Cleveland Fed's been right. Michael Kramer, he left. Hopefully he'll come back. He's, he's pointed out. Cleveland Fed's been right, I think, 19 out of the last 21 times. They missed. And, Neely, you should weigh in here if you're still here on the CPI number. 
that we had in October. That got messed up because of the way and, and Neely, actually, I want you to jump in here. Maybe you have a special insight on this. The way the reason the CPI number came in low in October from memory was because they changed the reset or whatever it was on the uh, healthcare stuff. And without that, it would have been a high number. So that's a one off. So we're done with that. Andrew, hold on a second. I see you raising your hand. And so if we just dispense with that one off and we go back to the Cleveland Fed, it's been on the right side of the CPI forecast 19 out of 21 months. And the sell side cheerleaders with their pom poms has always been too positive or too low of a number. For for choice, you'd expect the number will come in higher or better. I go with the Cleveland Fed. I mean, why not bet on the horse with been right 19 out of 21 times? I have no special insight. I'm just going to go with them. And then Pal, as someone said to me, and Baron, we're going to get to you. Pal, as someone, uh, and I think Michael Kramer wrote about this just last night or this morning, is, you know, he's got to you look at what a lot of the Fed governors are saying. What the what the guidance is going to be? Not they're going to jack up rates at a higher pace. It's just going to it's going to keep higher for longer. That's all. And a lot of the noise coming out of the Fed governors of late, it doesn't make any sense for Fowl to talk bullish right here. So I don't really know. But in the for what it's worth category, I just again I don't know the reaction of the news, but that's my guess on the news. And then beyond that, I don't see who's going to stand up and take a risk here between now and year end. If people still have to liquidate some merchandise into a less liquid market, that could get interesting. Baron, we're coming back to you here. I'm just trying to set you up here. It's T-ball time. So tactically short run. And then we have, you know, volatility bottomed out. The market got rejected as Hakeem Elijah won, a.k.a. John Roke from the 200-day, blah, blah, blah. So to me, it all sets up for the rally's basically over. I think Nikoski was just talking about that. Yeah, maybe we wiggle and jiggle for a few days. Who knows? But in the bigger scheme of things, we're going down. So short run, I think we go down. Beyond that, I think, Baron, all the macro stuff you're talking about, we're going down. I don't know. You know how much, how fast, but you know I I, I think we got a three thousand number sometime in the first half on the S and P three thousand number. Amy will get to you three thousand number sometime in the half of next year, first half of next year. So Baron, I'm going to shut up. I just wanted to tee it up for you. Uh, so my stream of consciousness is minimal upside, significant downside. I think three thousand S and P is very doable in the first half of uh, 2023. What do you think, Baron? Definitely. Uh- First, first week, first couple of weeks of February are going to be a very, very, very deep zone, if not sooner. If something else, black swan type of thing happens, then we only call it black swan. You can call it many black swans because they're using. But the reality is that all these margins have been kept up through earnings for the earned this past earnings. They barely, they they missed. So many companies missed or they fluffed their books, and it was clear if you listen to earnings calls how they did it. So they gained in places they shouldn't have gained, et cetera. But these, you know, they've had Black Friday sales since the summer back to back to back to back they're they're not running out of product yet they're going to run out of product but they're running out of consumers consumers aren't buying the goods anymore so they can keep discounting but, but now consumers are like well we've got everything we need we're fat we don't want anything anymore now their money is going somewhere else so as we've talked before if you just yep. look at what the banks are doing the banks are trying to lock up money right now they're offering high right. interest rates lock it up for 90 days 120 days six six months people are putting their money in there and they're in promotions where they're getting let's just say four to 6% over the next, you know, quarter uh, interest on that money. People aren't going to pull that out and it's not liquid so they can pull it out to buy stocks. Even if the market goes down, I believe they're going to, the money, a lot of money is going to be tied up. People are going to say it's safe. I don't feel comfortable. We're going to have an earnings recession like we've been planning and expecting. It's coming right now. It's going to start and that's going to be the windfall. And I think the Fed's going to win on that because it all the way down yeah. to that 2875 to 3300. Yeah. We'll probably hit 3300 first. 
and then we're going to have lose so much. All right, so so I see. All right, so you so so you're a bear. It's, uh, that's cool. Or at least you're clear on that. Maybe right, maybe wrong, but uh, you and I are in an echo chamber together. We're both bearish. Maybe we're wrong. Who the hell knows? Certainly won't be the first time nor the last time. All right, I want to go to uh, Andrew and then Amy. Wait, wait, no. First, Neely, talk about the consumer. Then Andrew, then Amy, and then Shrub. Neely, you want to weigh in on what parents say about the consumer? Well, I was just going to say about the CPI. <laughs> you said it earlier. I, you know, I'm about levels, not rate, as well, because that's what the consumer pays, and that all, you know, all consumer purchases begin with an economic reality. The reality is the level, the dollars, right, not the rate. So that will continue, you know, what, whatever Wall Street wants its uh, narrative to be on CPI, the consumer will have um, a reality check down the road if that continues to be, um, if that runs counter, right? So that's first and foremost. Second, you know, the method, there was a methodology change, I believe, on health insurance and how they're calculating health insurance in the October report. But, you know, heads up, there's another methodology change coming in January. <laughs> so when they report in early February, you're going to get yet another waiting uh, um, significant change in the methodology of CPI. Oh, so wait, so, so Amy, I want to get this straight. They're going yeah. to take, take out food, energy, and anything else that's going up to try to make the uh, CPI look good. Is that what they're going to do? Well, I mean, yeah, and I'll speak about it in a silly way so that people understand um, very simply because it's actually pretty complicated and it goes all the way back. We, <clears throat> for context, we have friends and contacts at the BLS, and so we do talk with them from time to time, you know, to understand better the conversations that go on on these methodology changes. So this is coming from a very deep place of nerddom, okay? But going all the way back to last year's um, CPI weight and update, the BLS actually had a pretty decent internal debate, we understand, because um, they update how they weight the, the CPI based on how people consume. But of course, we consumed very weirdly in 2020 versus 2019. It was, we, we purchased a lot of toilet paper you know, to speak about it simply in 2020, and nobody really went to the dentist. Okay. So, you know, if you look at those kind of two different areas, it created like this weirdness in the CPI. When they were reporting it all this last year, they decided to still kind of keep it on that um, every two years dynamic. Heading into this year, what they're saying is like, okay, okay, okay. We usually average it over two years of consumption data, which, by the way, would include 2020 and 2021 for this next update. Uh, they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what we're going to do this time? We're just going to base it on 2021. So how people consumed in 2021 <laughs> was very goods-focused, right? Uh, and um, starting to be a little bit more services, but largely goods-focused still because we were getting vaccinated and returning and stores were reopening, right? And now that's going to be the heftier part of the wait to, be very, to keep this simple um, as you head into the 2023 um, numbers. So... We are obviously already in a period of bringing down goods consumption, and so it will very likely show the optics of CPI doing oh, better. So, so, so Neely, I have mm -hmm. to weigh in, but you got me so excited yep. and you tricked yep. me. So basically, if you take something like Peloton as a poster child for what you're talking about, where they're cutting the price of that like crazy, things like a Peloton where the price is going to go down, that's going to be upweighted in the freaking index, which is going to make it look less bad than it would be otherwise. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sir. Neely, let me ask you a question. For those of us conspiracy theorists, 
And I'm out of the closet on that. I mean, I think you are, but you're in the closet. You're too normal a person. For those of us that are conspiracy theorists, we'd say they're doing this deliberately just to kind of jam the numbers for all kinds of reasons. They're trying to paint the tape. It's kabuki production, all right? I mean, did they really... Is this just like... Like like, like Roke was talking at the outset. These are people that don't live in the real world. Like, are they doing this to try to scam the system and game the numbers for, 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 for their own... For obvious advantages? Is it willfully done? Or are they just like complete detached naive nerds and they just there's no freaking common sense that's going to what they're doing i don't know how to answer that in a way that would probably satisfy many in the room but i would say this uh i have seen the power of groupthink um in my career and i would imagine the loudest voice is the one where people are leading versus perhaps contemplative voices in critical thinking counter narratives. It's very unpopular these days to be against the, you know, the will and the way of the room. And, um, you know, I believe deeply, and I teach this, as you know, I'm also a professor, I teach the requirement of the 10 man rule in my room. And so when everyone is agreeing and one, I, I say it's our moral obligation to now argue the other point that's not represented in this room and really walking them through that. I think that there's a lot of moral lacking of moral bravery that's happening in these conversations. I can't speak specifically to the BLS, my friends who are there. I love them dearly. And I think that individually they're very, very amazing, bright, critical thinker. So I do not want my comments to reflect on them as individuals, but I think organizations do suffer from groupthink. So, so let me ask you this. Okay, so, okay, so let me ask the question slightly differently. So when you're on the quiet in a setting, friend to friend, you talk to one of these people and you just try your own best Colombo imitation. Gee, you know, what about this? I don't understand. Can you please explain it to me? Blah, blah, blah. And you try to engage them in like a common sense discussion around one of these points. How's that go? Has that has that has that has that blow over? It's, I mean, it's it's like you and I having a conversation. We're gonna be iron sharpening iron. I think that I'm just saying that the dynamic changes when you get into the room. I'm sure, but this is actually one, and this is a little bit of my PSA. Okay, and and you know, you know, like I said, I'm a good, <laughs> calm, critical thinking Christian girl from the Midwest, right? But here's here's where I would go with this. I use, and I should say we use in our firm, um, almost exclusively not seasonally adjusted data. And we make our own adjustments to it Okay, in terms of like the, you know, we will trend line it, et cetera. If you question a tiny thing like this methodology shift, you should question times 4,000 how they're doing their seasonal factors. Because there's no way, there's you could not convince me right here, right now, because I have actually gone down into the bowels of some of these government agencies to have these conversations on their seasonal factors. How in the world have you been able to adjust your seasonalities based on what just happened in this consumer economy? There is no way. There's no, it's, it would be like a fact sitting at the end of a golden retriever's tail wagging wildly okay there is no way there's truth in seasonal adjustments and so um we exclusively use not seasonally adjusted data and we we make sense of that so if anyone who is a data uh nerd in here and you care deeply about truth i would throw all of your seasonal adjusted data out the window and do the work yourself for the truth
Thanks, Neely. That's awesome. All right, listen, we've got. Can I ask Neely a question, George? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hold on one second. Hold on one second. Amy, I was going to get to her. So, Amy, I'm going to let you go first, but hear me out for a second. It's kind of like I'm balancing a lot of different uh, considerations here. We got Andrew, Philip, Amy, and Shrub, and I want everyone to talk. So each of you, when you speak, you're going to have multiple chances to speak, but I want to get work everyone in the conversation. So, Amy, you can dive in first, and we're going to do Andrew, Philip, and Shrub. But I'm going to ask each of you to, with your initial opening, whatever it is, try to keep it tight so we can walk, walk everyone in and we can keep this thing going. So, Amy, go for it. The floor is yours. Yeah. Just real quick, I wanted to ask Neely a question on what she was saying. So, so how much of the this is do you feel like is based? Because I've I've felt through this whole thing that that how people were going to react post COVID, you know, that how their lives were going to change, how they were going to spend all of that was was not really quantifiable. So, how much of it is just based on the data real time, right? Like it's not something that you can really you know chart or graph or or you know use historical, you know data on just because there was no way to really quantify how consumers and, and people in general were going to react post COVID how it was going to change people's lives. Amy, are you asking, you know, yeah, I was, I was just asking you how, like for, as far as, you know, truth-based, like how much of it is, is just that they don't know they, they, there was no way to really know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, what we, I'll just answer it this way very succinctly. What we've experienced from consumption behavior um, shift in, and I, and I don't mean just what we consumed, but actually how we viewed trust with, I mean, whole relationships and families fell apart, right? Like, oh, vaccinated, right. unvaccinated, right? Like, oh, um, you know, mask, no mask. I mean, there's so many things that changed around the assurance, the need for assurance and trust. In consumption um that I, I i think we're still living out what that truth might be in that trajectory on a go forward basis right. i have a whole that's that's for another space for another time but it absolutely relates to consumption behavior um it isn't just about what we consumed it's how we trust each other okay that's that was my question and, and just my comment for you george was about the fed you know the thing that i'm kind of focusing on is after powell's little speech uh, two weeks ago, when was it that he spoke? The, the bond market started pricing in Fed funds rate under 5%. So I'm, I'm kind of paying attention to what he's saying going forward. And because I don't, I, I still don't think we end the year. I, I, I mean, I don't know. That's, that's the part that I'm kind of focusing on because I, don't, I, I feel like the bond market's getting it wrong. So I just wanted to see what everybody's thought on that was. But that was really my only comment. So, yes. Um, so, Amy. When you say bond market getting wrong, you think yield should be higher? Is that what you're saying, Amy? Yeah, I think I think that they're I think that the bond market's pricing in Fed funds rate under five percent and I don't think that's guaranteed. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I, I, I mentioned on Friday and I mentioned again this morning. I guess it's not investment advice, but uh, I did short some bonds on Friday because just listening through Vincent Deliward's presentation yet again on why inflation is gonna be higher for longer. You know, ten year at three fifty just makes no sense to me. Amy, let me ask you a more general question, which doesn't rely just on your interpretation of the Fed per se, but you have a pretty good nose for things. What's your feeling about the markets more generally, or what do you have high conviction on? We've had this, you know, pretty significant counter-trend rally since the mid-October lows. Do you think we're more or less done with that, or do you think it extends further, or maybe you don't have a strong market call, you have strong views on certain sectors? Like, what, 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 what are your convictions right now, Amy? Um, well, you know, we're coming into one of the 
the worst weeks for seasonality, just, just in talking about seasonality um, coming up this week, right? So we've got, I, I don't, I, yes, I think that, that the, you know, up, up and away part of the rally is over. Um, I think, you know, we've got top, tax loss harvesting. We've got, you know, the worst week for seasonality. So I don't see, I don't, I don't foresee like a, a large drop. I think they're going to, they're going to raise 50 basis points and it's going to all come in line with what we already know. Um, and, but I, I don't think the, you know, we're going to see considerable upside from here. So I, I'm, I actually closed all my positions on Friday just because we're coming into this, you know, right week. Um, so I'm not in anything at the moment, but I'm just going to, I'm just kind of watching to see, how this week goes we've got FOMC and then you know seasonality the worst week of the year so it should be interesting I don't feel I, I'm not bullish how about that yes yeah, so, not, I'm not overly bearish it, it, I it, Amy if you try to get in the, ahead of the Fed or ahead of Jerome Powell looking at you know what he said the last couple of times and even more importantly how the markets reacted to what he said and again, this is, this is stupid. This is fool's errand to even ask us to answer this question. But I apologize for asking. But I got to try just because I respect you so much. You have such a good nose for things. Um, what do you think in terms of the impression he wants to leave? Forget about the statement. Yeah, it'll probably be fifty, whatever. But as we've seen the last few times, the action's always been in the comments afterwards. Is you know how they're interpreted, and you know they must have some idea of what the impact's going to be of what they say. So if you're pal. Given that the market's rallied as much as it has, you think he's okay with that? And or do you think, you know, and given that the Fed's not going to speak again for a few weeks, I guess, um, given the market's up so much, you know, as, as, as I think I retweeted out earlier today or yesterday, the market's basically completely undone all the tightening that there was. Financial conditions are as easy now as they were back in June. So if you're pal, do you think you want to lead the crowd? more hawkishly or just stand aside and say kind of nothing be neutralish and let the crowd run where it wants with it. Like, where do you think his head is at? What do you think, where do you think he wants to lean coming out of this whole thing? I do think he's going to be a little bit more neutral, especially because we have voting members coming off of FOMC. They're, they're changing over cash car is coming on fuller's coming off. So I think he is going to just kind of finish out the year just the way he was at his speech two weeks ago <clears throat> when he spoke and, and that's just going to be it. And do you think the market, do you think the market does anything with it or, or, or no strong conviction? around that? I don't think there's much con strong conviction going into the end of the year. I mean, even, even amongst the bulls, right. I mean, I think everybody's going to try to glide through to, to January and, you know, see where what the what the earnings are going to be like baron was saying like everybody's waiting for that that earnings crash rightfully so got it makes sense that's great amy all right so we got andrew phillip and shrub so andrew uh floor is yours please keep it tight we will let you have a follow-up but i want to keep working people in here andrew good to see oh, you God. great up, spaces uh, great spaces george um i love the the neely accents and uh, i'm crazy enough to have some family in minnesota myself um 
and um, you know, I, I, John, what John said, I'm, I'm on board with everything he said. And, um, you know, I, I see, we, I think we muddle along a little longer until the second half. And then I have a target of like 3150 on the, on the S and P. Um, but um, I'm seeing some real cracks, um, you know, the regional bank weakness um, uh, REITs uh, last week with uh, SLG and, and well tower that, that those were some shots from the bow and in, in, in my viewpoint. Um, and then, and, um, you know, energy, energy is scaring me, even though I'm looking for value um, in the space. Um, so so I see some some areas of concern. And then I loved your um, your restaurant comparisons. I, I used to have this uh, Asian takeout place on 79th and 1st that I, I used to take out from them all the time. And then one day I walked by and, and their their rating dropped from A to C and I never went back. The next time I walked by, they were they were closed shop, you know. So, um, so yeah, um, the risk happens quickly. Thanks, Andrew. Much appreciated. Let's go to Philip, and then we got Shrub. Philip, please unmute yourself. The floor is yours. Thanks, George. Um, great space. Anytime I see John Roke on, I, I I've got to stop what I'm doing and get on get on your spaces. So, um, you know, listen, I've been kind of in the queue for a while. Um, I, I want to make a just a quick comment. I agree with you 100 percent on China. For for me, uh, totally uninvestable. But I think. You know, when you look at the broader geopolitical background, and if you if you read about Z's um, ascension and his um, really really hardline political beliefs, I mean we're we're at war with China, and you can see it with Apple moving production to India. I think that's going to accelerate. Um, and you know, if you want to trade China, I you know I don't I don't see an issue with that. But over the longer term. You know, that's where I think there's massive geopolitical risk. So um, and we could have a whole space on just China. Right. And, and you look at the semiconductor, um, you know, controls that the U.S. is putting in place. Absolutely unprecedented. Right. So the, the other comment I want to make before I get to a question for John and perhaps Neely is, you know, if you look back at when Powell started to uh raise rates, you know, he started with 75 bips. You know, I, I haven't gone through the trouble of doing the work, but mentally I've noted, you know, the Fed ch uh, chair people, you know, the, the various presidents from around the country, if you look at some of their comments, hawkish versus dovish, my perspective is it has been exceedingly purposeful. And the reason it's purposeful is you've got a hawkish Powell at Jackson Hole, and then you've got dovish Fed presidents purposely attempting to confuse the market. So you've got people going both ways. And the reason is because we just, we can't afford the whole thing to be coming down. And you could look at other, you know, specific things like you guys pointed out Tether a year and a half ago. Well, can you imagine if, you know, the Southern District of New York had hammered Tether, right? Bitcoin would have imploded at whatever it was then, 40 or 50,000, which would have caused all kinds of other things. And so I think what I'm seeing from the Fed is just a consistent foaming of the runway. Every time the market starts to go down hard, there are additional dovish comments. And, it, you know, if nothing else, you got to give the, the guys credit. They've learned uh, from from history how powerful their words are. So. Um, I'll leave it at that. But, but I, you know, I want to, so my question is fundamentally about housing and the builders, right? 
So if you listen to the earnings calls from D.R. Horton, Taylor Morrison, Toll Brothers, et cetera, these guys have had unbelievable years, right? It's all very obvious. Record sales, record you know, in dollars, record sales in units, record gross margins, record profits across the board. So from my vantage point, it's like it doesn't get any better than this, right? It's, it's only going to get worse. And then you look at their, uh, you know, their forward guidance is, is very murky, right? Um, optimistic and murky. But then if you contrast that, I don't know if anybody on this call heard the Restoration Hardware Conference call yesterday. CEO, right, who is at the mercy of the luxury home market insofar as, you know, their business continuing to grow. And they had, again, Restoration Hardware had record profits across, across the board, record margins. This guy was unequivocally bare. I mean, he called luxury housing in a free fall, right? And yet their stocks are still levitating, whether it's D.R. Horton, uh, Toll Brothers, et cetera. And so, you know, I, I want either John or Neely to talk about that, but also the thing that I can't get straight is you see these charts folks are posting online about the, the you know, trillion and a half dollars or thereabouts of excess savings. And I've never seen anybody, and Neely, I'm hoping you can draw some light on this. I haven't seen anybody try to stratify that excess savings by quintile or quartile. Because my running hypothesis is that, yeah, maybe the top two quintiles are fine. But the bottom 60% of the, of the consumer is going to be in real trouble. And it's that marginal consumer dollar that's going to really drive the economic growth or contraction. And so, you know, you could tie that right back into oil as well and say, well, geez, if, the, if 60% of the marginal consumer is in trouble, right, they're spending paycheck to paycheck, their excess savings is depleted or depleting fast as evidenced by credit card growth. We've seen that go up meaningfully, right? Then oil's got to go down before it goes up. Am I a secular bull in, in oil? For sure. I see all the things that the, the con talks about relative to, you know, uh, you know, supply, but that doesn't mean we can't have a bear market in oil because the consumer is getting crushed. So I'll stop there. Great comments, Philip. Neil, you want to go with that? Yeah, I'll, um, I think first, Philip, thank you so much for your questions um, here. Uh, one thing just to keep in mind, and I, I've put this in Twitter sphere, so is let's remember who Gary Friedman is friends with. <laughs> okay, so he's the CEO, right? And I took Restoration Hardware public uh, on the second time around when they went public. So I'm very familiar with the the company, the Genesis, et cetera. I, I don't currently cover them, right? But of course I have muscle memory. And um, Barry Sternlich used to be on the board at Restoration Hardware. And Barry Sternlich has also been in the public domain talking about concerns around the high end and what have you. And if you think about it, what you can probably pretty quickly get to is Starwood, the REIT, right? The Starwood, which is where, you know, Barry Sternlich, CEO of Starwood, um, the Starwood REIT, I think, has had a withdrawal freeze uh, recently, uh, similar to uh, a couple others in the REIT land. So I, I I just wonder if perhaps some of that commentary could be coming out of 
what they're seeing in their own business, for sure. Could it also be coming out of, you know, cocktail conversations among friends? Entirely plausible as well. So I just wanted at least, you know, uh, that's a very easily followable who knows who and who was on whose board and whose friends. Um, That would be uh, a pretty logical assessment I think one can make maybe about where that commentary could be coming from out of uh, Friedman. Appreciate that, Neely. All right. Um, Pal keeps getting stronger and stronger. So, you know what, Shrub, hold up for one second. Cancho, if you have something particularly you'd like to weigh in on that question, on that topic, that'd be great. Um, I want to get Shrub up here. He's been waiting patience, but Cantra, I yield to you. Go for it, Cantra. Yeah. Hey, George, I'll be quick. So just regarding leadership, you know, we often look at relative performance of groups or even the absolute performance of groups like housing or whatever as an indication of you know, near-term or future fundamental trends. And, you know, absolutely anything backward-looking on housing looks fantastic, but everything forward-looking looks pretty horrible. Given that, you know, the, it's the bond market that's been whipping around equity markets and therefore equity market leadership, if you look at the ITB index or Lennar or any of those companies, you know, they were all at their lows with the market at its, at its low, and then they all, have, they all had huge rallies in the summer and since uh, the lows in October. Those are like the place you want to be if you're really playing the end of a Fed uh, tightening cycle or, or the end of rising interest rates uh, at a time where the economy is hanging, hanging in there still, employment's still okay. Uh, and so I think to the point about the housing stocks, I think it's just a lot of people piling in there, playing lower rates and having nothing to do with really forward-looking, improving fundamentals. And it's a really important nuance because the bond markets ha- never had this much of a grip on the equity market. And so, you know, housing stocks can hang in there as long as rates don't go back up or employment doesn't get worse. And maybe we're in the middle ground between those two things right now. And you know, ultimately, I do think employment gets worse, but uh, there, there's, there's, a, there's a limit to how high housing stocks can, can run up here on the back of lower rates because eventually rates are going to fall for, you know, bad reasons probably. So that's the point I want to make, George. Thanks. Appreciate that, Cantrell. Hey, Philip. George, is, is John Roke still on? Because I'd love to, to well, hear I, his comments on the... On I, think the I think he's dropped off. Oh, no worries. Uh, hey, Nikoski, do you have any any perspective on the builders from a short side perspective, you know, on, on a technical uh, vantage point? Um, you know, I, I've got a number of spaces over the last week and, and posted, you know, on... Helen Meisler's um, comment about housing, you know, the amazing things that I would never expect to see, you know, in a bear market is Soul Brothers, D.R. Horton and Lennar at, you know, 10 month relative strength highs. I mean, you would have been better off buying them, you know, at the market lows than the market, you know, and, you know, my, my view is, is, you know, we're definitely in a housing bubble and asset prices crashing there. There's no ifs, ands or buts about it. Um, you know, technically they, they look attractive though. You know, I, I can't lie. Like either people are putting enough money down or the drop in a lot of the commodity structure, such as lumber, which, you know, my neighbor put up a $4,000 or 4,000 square foot house about three years ago. The builder called them, you know, probably a year and a half ago and said, Hey, that same house would be $50,000 more in lumber. Okay, to give you an idea of the cost savings and with where lumber is, you know, I don't know if these companies are managing to right size the companies or, you know, right sizing it in in the decline of housing. I mean, you know, fundamentally, 
you know, maybe someone can look at them and tell me, but, you know, I have a lot of friends in the building industry that have cut 50% of their staff. And you know what? They're willing to hire if they can get lower cost employees. Yeah. So, you know, that's the beauty of the U.S. economy is you can right size a comp- company very quickly, whereas in Europe you cannot. So, and I don't know if that's, if that's the truth. I don't know. But, you know, I, like I say, I, everyone I know in the building industry near me that I know and have great relationships with, you know, companies that build, you know, 600 homes a year. That's what I, that's what I've been told. And a lot of, I I know, for instance, that there's a development going, going in just North of Minneapolis, um, Excel energy just sent them a notification that they cannot provide power for that entire development. So I don't know if they don't have the power to provide for that development or they, they can't get the um, parts that they need to put in a 200 house development that was all okayed and approved. So you, you are seeing, you know, something in the supply chain or the inability to get permits from the government to provide and produce more power. You know, I don't know what, what the case is, but, you know, that's what yeah. I'm hearing, at least through personal so- contacts. Based on the on the conference calls from you know D.R. Horton, for example, um, and, and Taylor Morrison, they, they they have noticed a substantive reduction in foot traffic and marketing, right? Yeah. And they are reducing their prices now. Lumber and other material inputs have come down. Labor's come down a little bit. Labor's freed up a little bit, and so they're able to to complete homes a little bit quicker than they were in you know during COVID because that was obviously a problem. Um, but cancellations are way up, like 29% cancellation oh, rate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I keep thinking about a car crash, right? The car hits, you know, a fixed object or, or even a slowing, you know, a car going 75 hits a car going 50. And it still takes a couple of seconds for the passenger's head to hit the steering wheel. And that's what I feel like we're in in housing. Every, you know, housing is still great because everybody's looking at, at last quarter's earnings, but if you skate to where the puck's going, like I, I, I couldn't I mean, agree with you more. But you know, technically, you know, I don't like you know going against hey something hitting a ten month relative strength high. I mean, are you safer there than the S and P? You know, that's what I'm looking at. Everything's relative to me. You know, yeah, if I it's a great if point. I get you into a housing market that you know it, with the average house going down, let let's say it goes down twenty five percent. If I can get you into a housing market that's only gone down ten percent. You know, you're feeling like a king, right? And, you know, that's, that's, but this is, this is not a normal market. This is nothing that we can compare it to in terms of history, what we would expect. Like, I would have expected the high yield bonds to blow out. The high yield has been safer. Yeah, I totally agree. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're kind of going off the trail here, right? There's a lot we can talk about here, but kind of the sergeant arms, I got to keep this thing in order. Yeah, I want to go to Shrub. I have a lot of, I think Cantor's got much to say. I got a lot to say, but I want to go to Shrub. He's been waiting patiently. Shrub, good to hear from you. Hey, George. Hey, you know, we're on six hour time zone change. So, um, yeah, we've been out of touch for a while, but I don't know if you want to respond to anything specific or you just want to. We haven't heard from you lately. You just want to go for five minutes on what you're thinking of the world these days. Yeah, let let me just uh, answer a few of those questions. So, one of the most important things to watch is the savings in the system. So there's a very there's a fantastic book by um, Galbraith that was recommended actually by the Seawolf Cap. Uh, uh, so one one common thing with all the bubbles is that high level of savings, 
And it's actually really, really intuitive if you think about it. Bubbles are created because the average person has excess money, doesn't know what to do with it, and he starts doing stupid things like uh, buying tulips or crypto or stacks. And, uh, you know, there's always the charlatan that says, we're democratizing finance, so he makes it easy for them to buy all this crap. So, you know, we had... so. The, the level of savings in the system is very important to just see how the bubble deflates. And the one thing that I've seen, I've seen some data for the, this other gentleman was asking if there was a breakdown by quartile um, of savings. And I've seen some data whereby the lower quartile people have basically used up their excess savings from the pandemic and also they've started actually leveraging up through the credit cards. So that's why if you see the credit card usage is very high up because then the average person uh, probably got used to like a better lifestyle or something during the pandemic because of excess savings. So now he's tapping his credit cards or basically inflation is forcing him to use the credit cards. So the lower quantile people in terms of wealth are pretty screwed at this point. And this is, you know, this is the kind of, uh, quartile that you want to track because that's when the pitchforks come out in reality, right? So that's the point number one. Point number two is the top quartile people, they actually have, they still have excess savings and they actually still made a lot of money from the pandemic. Um, and just a very anecdotal evidence, I was speaking with a big uh, uh, yacht broker yesterday and he said they still have a lot of demand for yachts so the sale and purchase business is actually doing very well, but it's down 15%. So it's quite bizarre because people that have serious amount of money are actually putting that money to use, but people that are like kind of just got lucky or something or had a few good years, they're very they're pulling back. So he said it's the same thing that happened in 09 and 08, uh, same kind of feel. So if you take this, the savings being very important, then you then I go back to my favorite indicator, as you know. I, I track the flows in asset classes, which I, I think is, for me, it's uh, one of uh, the core of my process. So I, I look at the flows in the equity markets. So year to date, we've had, with so the market is down, the S&P is down 17%, bear in mind. The NASDAQ is down 30% and it's down, I don't know, more than 20 so year to date, we've had 250 billion outflow from bonds. So that correlates well with TLT being down. Bizarrely, we've had commodity outflows of billion. We've only had a money market flows of 19 billion, which is again is bizarre given that uh, rates are you know paying you you're getting paid to have your money there. And then we go to equities, plus 200 billion of inflows. So we're still running. It's the age-old thing that we've been talking since January of this year. The money billion came into ETFs and 300 billion left the long only. You still have excess uh, money hey. in the equity market and the percentage of allocation equities is very, very high. So go back to the same setup we've had in 2000 which I keep repeating, but, you know, no one listens really. <laughs> 2000, the market was down 10%. 2001, the market was down 13%. 2002, the market was down 23 And if you remember, 2002 was when everyone got killed. So 
I kind of think we're going to have the same thing here. Um, I think we're going to have, you know, we took the first wave out, we took the retail out. 2023, we probably just chop along and kill people trying to buy breakouts or think it's a new bull market or whatever bullshit. So we probably finish next year down 10. And then 2024, we can finish down 20 for all I know. Um, so again, it's a very painful process because we're used to sharp movements because of the COVID V-shaped recovery, because of like, you know, what we've seen in the past, people want a quick resolution, but they will not get a quick resolution because there's still excess liquidity and money in the system. And there was an amazing conversation between you and uh, Michael Howell a few days ago, which everyone should go and listen to because that was a, phenomenal conversation that you're not going to get anywhere else where he's talking about liquidity and i actually agree with him because that liquidity is what's going to make it even more painful to find a bottom because we know things are overpriced still we know things are out of whack so i find pockets of value in some things but there's ov there's some really obvious pockets of overvaluation right so you know the crazy car company to start with it's only half a trillion dollars right so there are all these bizarre discrepancies that are a result of liquidity, and that will take a while to play out, especially um, for another added reason that uh, Michael Howell touched, on, touched upon as well, and I feel I'm on the same page, is the guilt, uh, the guilt let's call it the guilt Mageddon, when the UK uh, uh, Treasury lost control of the guilt market, that was a bit of a wake-up call for the other central banks to not blow it up completely and have like a December 18 uh, dislocation. That's why that liquidity is still kind of in the system and they're still trying to tighten but managing it a bit. Um, so overall, the setup is basically a very bizarre setup that you know, you will not get a quick resolution. You will not get VIX. I mean, look at the VIX. The VIX is behaving so weirdly. We're like VIX 2022 with <laughs> things like blowing up left, right, center. So again, that's, a, that's an example of liquidity in the system. And I think that's what we're going to have in 2023 as well. Um, the other couple of quick points I'll just make. Um, from the technical aspect, uh, we started, you had a great spaces with uh, 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 Weinstein, if you remember. And the, you know, back then I've been, Post posting once in a while, the Nasdaq, uh, the Nasdaq chart with the thirty-week moving average, and that chart made me probably more money than any chart this year. We've had that uh, spaces with uh, um, Weinstein in I think maybe it was in February, and it was the Nasdaq was just touching um, the thirty-week moving average. It failed badly. And then I flagged it again when it went back to touching the 30-week moving average. It was the first week of August. And I flagged it back then. I think we, I joined you on a Spaces and mentioned that as well. That failed badly. And that was like a moneymaker. Shorting the, the NASDAQ in the mid-August was like a massive, massive moneymaker. And lo and behold, if you see what I put in the nest, we're back at the 30-week moving average. So... I'm not saying it's going to fail this time. I'm just saying you have a very, very easy marker to see how the market is going to go. 
by just tracking if it closes above and how it behaves around the 30-week moving average. Now, um, uh, another two, th three things I'm going to say is like the profits of 2023, um, it's going to be a question of the profits that uh, they've been trending above inflation. So there's the, this comment they've been saying, greedflation. So I'll be, I'll be watching about greedflation. And one example of governments attacking greedflation greedflation is the windfall tax that we've seen in the UK with the oil and gas companies. I think we're going to see other examples of that governments attacking greed, greedflation. Um, and the other two, three points, Europe. So Europe, a couple of months ago, again, I came in uh, bullish Europe. I said that I was long calls on the DAX, and I think I was like the lone voice. And, uh, you know, some people ping me privately making fun of me, actually. But that played out very well because it was people who just thought it was going to be, you know, Europe would blow up straight away. Well, right now, actually, Europe, the DAX is in a golden cross bull market above the 200 DMA. And I'm actually now I'm scratching my head because, you know, we're now actually entering a bad winter. Uh, all the good news have played out and the DAX is kind of a bellwether of the global economy. So I think that's like a massive avoid. Uh, Europe is a massive, massive avoid uh, right here, especially with the euro bouncing at 105. Um, and lastly, the other thing to be very, very scared about um, the TLT is kind of overbought, three and a half percent. I think it's kind of risky to be long, although I liked it. Um, I kind of don't like it with the CPI where it is. And the the thing that could be the story of 2023 is the credit spreads. They're just way too tight, and the credit spreads could be the shock. Having said that, though, the credit spreads there's two segment two sectors that are kind of high yieldish that are doing pretty well. The one is energy, although although the oil price you know, got hit, actually the energy credit is doing pretty well because they are making money. The second one is banks, and banks usually blow up in this kind of environment, but they're actually doing pretty well because of there's, you know, there's net interest margins are pretty healthy. So those two segments are actually what are helping the credit spreads um, stay tight. But I would be more careful about the other segments there. And I'll, I'll just leave it there, George. Uh, sorry, one more thing, one more thing, very important thing. Very, very important thing, underestimated. Blackstone REIT blowing up. Um, I spoke to a very big private bank. They had stuffed all their clients with that Blackstone REIT paper. And that's a very important uh, point because that was supposed to be their best performing illiquid slash real estate investment. Blackstone had not raised the gates in, during COVID. And the fact that Blackstone did it, it means everyone is going to fall one by one. Starwood did it now as well. And this is a segment of their uh, discretionary mandates of private banks that actually was supposedly, supposedly has done well this year, was supposedly up 7% this year. So I would hate to see what their venture capital crap is going to mark uh, in February when the auditors actually come in. So I think there's like a false wealth uh, there is false wealth sitting right now in the private banks, and that's going to be a rude awakening after the auditors come in. Shrub, Shrub, what a masterful survey of the scene. Uh, Kench, we'll get to you in one second, but Shrub, I want to drill down a little bit further. Starting with the BlackRock, uh, so what, that's all frozen right now, so it's being held at this bogus mark. Do we have any idea when that's going to become liquid and what it might be marked at? No idea, but imagine when they start actually selling assets. 
because if they have to sell assets to meet those redemptions, that's going to be a pretty, pretty big hit for markets that are not that liquid anymore. Um, so, you know, when, I mean, to give the example of Germany, you know, Blackstone was the biggest, uh, one of the biggest buyers of residential real estate in uh, Germany. So what, what they're going to go now and sell uh, 10,000 units like that? Can't do that <laughs> with mortgages going up. So it's, so it's a classic example of a asset liability duration mismatch. Um, and it's happening to the biggest private pool of capital we've ever seen. <laughs> So, you know, it used to be these guys that used to be you know, 10 billion funds, 20 billion funds. Now, how much does Blackstone run? Is it uh, closing into a trillion or something? Yeah, so, Blackstone, I mean, the Blackstone on total is like trillions of dollars. Right? Yeah, tr exactly. So basically, it's, a, it's become where it was supposed to be. It's a classic example. It was supposed to be a niche asset class, and now it's just the dominant asset class. And they miss... They miss yeah, uh, yeah. They misguided uh, investors Rob, about what listen, it is. Rob, just listening to you talk, it kind of runs in perfect parallel fashion with Tiger. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, absolutely. We, you know, the private should have been like a sidecar, a side thing. That became half their fucking book. Absolutely, and I think um, the I think that's why I mentioned it. I'm going to call it. We need to call it something. The false wealth effect, because when I spoke to the private banker. This was like one of the biggest private bankers here in uh, Europe. Shrub, so, I, don't, I don't know where. I got to look it up where the name came from. I think it's a good term for that. Sort of, it's the mark to myth. The mark to myth. I love that. Yeah. But the mark. To, it's the mark to myth. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Mark yeah, to myth. Yeah, but okay. imagine because yeah. the family offices in Monaco, the family offices in Europe, about forty percent of their assets are in uh, uh, private equity and venture capital. So imagine that these guys that their liquid portfolio is down 20, 30% this year, but they're saying, oh, but it's okay. Blackstone is up 7%, so we're good. And then once the first guy tries to take it out and that mark is not real, well, immediately you kind of screwed yourself on the other 40% straight away because 100%. the committees the committees will be coming out for all these guys, and that's going to happen in February. Yeah, so Shrub, so Shrub, let me ask you this. I mean, you and I are largely in agreement on all this, but... I want to drill down a little further here to something I usually don't do, but I think we're at a delicate point in markets. You know, we've had this nice counter-turn rally off the mid-October lows. Um, John Roke, who was in here earlier, you know, talking about being rejected at the 200-day, 4,100, 4,200, whatever. Uh, volatility's come way down. Um, you know, it's interesting the crap has not led in this rally, which is what you'd expect if this was the real deal. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, you have CPI Tuesday, Powell on Wednesday. Um, you may say, George, my opinion, I don't have strong conviction on this, but whether it's this week or not so locally, micro the next few days, the next few weeks, I mean, my own view is like, I don't know what's going to happen Tuesday, Wednesday. I said earlier, I, I suspect the, you know, the, 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 the CPI number, probably, I'll go with the Cleveland Fed, I'll take the over. And then Powell, who the hell knows? But as Stan Weinstein would say, what's important is not the news, but the reaction to the news. So in terms of what you think Powell is more inclined to say or do, lean hawkishly, lean neutrally, lean, 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 lean dovishly, but more importantly, what, how the market's going to react to all that, thinking that also who's going to want to stand up and take risk in the calendar? Here we are in mid-December. A lot of places have closed up shop already. This has been an Anna's Horribles for so many. They just wish the year would be over. And then thinking about how the market's rallied so much over the last two months, and I'm packing a lot in here, I'm trying to set up the question for you. 
Do you have a strong view about the market over the next week, month, two months? I have a very strong view, which is I have a I have a non-consensus view. I have, to, I have to tease you. You even confused me with your tweet. Something about the monkey and the cat and the monkey's smart. And I, I read the whole thing and I'm like, I don't know what the hell the guy's talking about. So maybe you got to explain it. I kind of forgot. I use I use the monkey analysis all the time. Yeah, Just because I. I grew up as a man, as a monkey that tried, you know, I tried to evolve into a shrub <laughs> because, you know, it's funny. This, this business, as you know, very well, it's a monkey business. And, uh, you know, being in a hedge fund, you kind of like, you are a monkey, you're smart, but you're forced to act like a monkey, right? Sometimes, you know that, you know that as well, right? Being a, sometimes we do things in a fund that we don't, we wouldn't do if, uh, under other circumstances, because you know we have investors or we have other mandates, we have a mandate that forces us to do something, and that's why, you know, I I joke about these things, but in reality, it's it's the nature of the game. <laughs> and uh, you know, being a bit of a free agent, I can I know how the game is played, so I just try to play the game the other side. <laughs> I try to find the weakness uh, from what the market participants right, 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 uh, are right, right. doing. Hundred percent. So so let's. So let's focus on that. Maybe zoom out. So you say I have conviction next week, yeah. month, two months, so three months. Here's my conviction. My conviction is bizarrely that I think H two next year is going to be where the real shit show is, and I think H one could even be choppy for a few months as we fight between bulls and bears and if there's a recession or no recession. And it's a very bizarre thinking, but. I have a feeling because things are not that bad yet that we keep rates higher. That's why I think the three and a half on the TLT is a bit of a mistake because I think things are not that bad yet. And if they keep rates higher, then they really slow the economy. So if everyone, if, if we're still debating if there's going to be a recession or not, because it's still a debate between people, then we, ha we can have rates higher for the next three to six months, and the Fed doesn't cut, then H2 could be a real shit show. That's why I use the example of 2000, 2001, 2000, 2001, 2002. 2002 was the worst year. So we could have a very bad H2, but H1 could be just be choppy around between 3,600 to 4,000 because uh, this is my other two conspiracy theories. I think there's a Fed short call at 4,000, so I think the Fed doesn't really want the market to be above 4,000 for much. So we, they're short a call. Uh, we are short a call, in, in actually, um, because a higher, the market is such a big part of wealth and the economy right now that a higher market actually loosens financial conditions, as we've seen now. So they don't want the market to be much above 4,000. But equally, at 3,600, you see them every time they're kind of coming in to calm the market a bit. So it's like a mini put. I wouldn't call it a put. I'm just going to say it's a mini put. And that mini put was more because of the bond market blowing up, which now there's more liquidity in the bond market because I don't think they want to have a guilt type event. I think that's what they care more about, that the S&P being at 3,600. So as soon as they fix that or calm it down a bit, I think they're not going to care about the 3,600 mini put. Now, the other thing I'm going to say is about Powell, because Powell is a lawyer, 
and an ex-private equity guy. I think Powell wants to tighten enough. So I joke about this uh, statement. This is my, the statement I'm going to joke with. Powell wants to tighten enough that Apollo's distressed fund can buy juicy distressed bonds at good yields. But he doesn't want to tighten that much that Apollo's real estate funds blow up. Does that make sense? You know, Shrub, you explain it now. I got to be honest with you, since I love you, man. I read that like five times backwards and forwards the other night, even after a few glasses of wine. And I couldn't understand it because the way you wrote it, the way you explain it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I think. When I hear the guy speak, I think about it this way. It's like he's, he's speaking with his buddies on the golf course or whatever he goes. And it's like, guys, you're going to be buying yields at 15%. You're going to buy distressed bonds at 15%. And they're going to be like, yeah, rubbing their hands. But he doesn't want to go to the golf course and see his uh, real estate, uh, Apollo real estate guy saying, dude, j Powell, you blew me up, you mofo. <laughs> so, 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 with that in mind, with that in mind, and get, so I agree with all that. But given that the market's run the last couple of months, and like you, I think the bond yields don't belong here. They belong higher. And given yeah. that the market's up, you know, it's drifted up close to 4,000, wherever we are, 39, whatever. I mean, and given where we are in the calendar, again, this is an, it's an atypical for me. I'm going to ask you an unusually short-term focused question. Between what's likely to happen this week with the CPI number and what Powell is or isn't going to say, but more importantly, the reaction to those events – and given where the calendar and people, no, I don't think anyone's going to want to stand and take a risk right now. What do you think for the next few weeks? I, I think there's no one with chips that can take risk right now. So if the CPI, let me put it this way, because right now I see a lot of value on the relative value. Like I see cheap stuff and expensive stuff. So if I'm going to say it this way is this, what would make me take off uh, my longs? If the CPI comes out just a whiff, I think you can see like a December 18 type scenario. And December 18 was very nasty. So given the setup, and the, again, with the NASDAQ touching the 30-week uh, moving average, man, if, it, if it's a bad print, it's going to be a very bad December. But equally, uh, let's think about it this way. Uh, by the way, I'm not positioned for this, just to be clear. So right now, my positioning is I'm long and short. I find I have longs that I like and I have shorts that I like, which for me is a bit rare. Like usually I have, I'm pretty directional. This time I'm like, you know, I don't like the car company. I like uh, whatever, right? Um, you know, and, uh, you know, you can long Disney or short Netflix or whatever. But this type of setup, oh my God, it's so bad. And what's bad about it, think about it this way, George. What's bad is that there's no people don't have chips to react accordingly for the last week. So that's why it can dislocate properly. But even worse, I think what's worse than having a bad ending for December, the real pain trade is to have a bad start for January. Because just let's just say that people write off 2022 and say, you know what, we're not going to get paid in 2022, but we can start 2023 fresh. So imagine they come in in 2023 and get a slap in the face. Shrub. So I think there's more painful. Because I'm like me, when I come in sometimes, because I'm a bit Machiavellian maybe sometimes, I try to think what's the biggest pain trade. And actually that's a bigger pain trade 
than a bad ending for 2022. Because 2022 is shit already, right? Market's down 30%. 2023, 2022. So 2023, you want to have a clean start. If you start with January down five or 10, <laughs> sayonara. Well, shrub, shrub, you want to go the ultimate pain trade. We're just bullshitting each other. But take the sucker down hard. By the way, I love the way you framed this. There's no one that has no one has risk chips to play with here to defend it if it goes down. So take it down. There's no one to, to defend it. And then and then also a, a bad 23. And honestly, I agree with you. If there's a 4,000 call and a 3,600 put, you know, we're closer to the top than we are to the bottom of that. And so as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. And so so I, 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 I'm leaning short. I, I, I'm negative. People can see the ETF. I mean, I just. If you put a gun to my head, if I, if I put a gun to your head and said, you know, red or black, up or down, what do you think? Oh, uh, down, down. Down. Okay, the, yeah. that, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. That's brilliant. Hey, Cantro, you want to jump in here and mix it up with Shrub? Cantro, are you there? Yeah, hey, George. I, I wanted to circle back to the housing point, um, but if, if you don't want to – I got a couple things I wanted to say that kind of bring it back to the high level for me. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they, go for it. Go for it. I'm sure Shrub will have some comments on that too. Yeah, go for it, uh, and, and I 1,000% agree with what Shrub was talking about, how the second half of the year is going to be the worst part. As tech, technicians would say, that's what the charts are showing. Um, every single macro leading indicator is still pointing pretty much straight down uh, for leading economic indicators, which means earnings revisions in throughout most of next year. Uh, and so that means that the worst of earnings, the worst of things like the ISM and other PMIs is probably not going to be until the bottom uh, oh, sorry, the late part of 2022. So that, that, you know, in other words, fundamentals would be at their worst, if not continuing to get worse towards the end of uh, next year. So that's totally uh, in line with what Trump was saying. I thousand percent agree. And what, what he said before that, where it's going to be kind of a, you know, a potential for uh, a back and forth right now, because, you know, there's two problems. We have a bond bear market and a coming earnings downturn. And right now we're kind of in between the two. And there's enough for both sides to debate both of those factors. So, that's what the market's going to be between that tug of war. So a thousand percent agree with that. Um, on housing, just to go back to the conversation we were having and what Dave, Dave Nikofsky was saying, you know, I, I agree in many ways. We've never seen this type of backdrop before. Uh, and that's the, you know, history is sometimes has these exogenous shocks. History does rhyme. But I, again, I, I still stand by that. There's parts of the cycle that always repeat, repeat, not rhyme. And, and that's, you know, how housing acts as a kind of a barometer uh, of the future of the economy. And so right now, housing stocks, you know, I think that there are, there are parallels you can look back. And I, I would say, look, look at housing stocks in June of 06. They rallied like 30, 40, 50% in the six months, the last six months of, uh, of 06, right ahead of the worst housing crash you know, effect in history. And so why did, why did housing stocks rip in June 06 through basically February 07? Because the Fed was done. And why are, why are housing stocks ripping up 20% since October? Because people think the Fed is done. So I, I see a very strong parallel there. And you can even go back to 2000, housing stocks bottomed in, uh, after rates rising in May of 2000 and then went, went up for basically the whole recession because we were in the middle of the housing bubble. Why did the housing stocks rip? Because the Fed was done. So, so that is repeating. And that's why housing stocks have done well now. Uh, so, again, there's definitely evidence of parallels there. On average, 70% of every stock is a function of macro. And right now, macro is bond yields. 
And so that's that's what's going on with housing and, and a lot of other stuff. And George, I sent you I sent you a a, a text message because uh, I'm trying not to post too much until uh, the end of the year um, of ARC and ITB. And directionally, from January till the October lows in the market, directionally they've been the exact same trade. And that's and that, that's the connection. That's macro, right? There's nothing that that Kathy right, right. So, 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 so Cantor, if I tell you. I'm taking responsibility for the bond call, tactical, and I'm with Shrub. And I think bond yields are going up, bond prices are going down. I own that. Yeah. I put it into the Piper Cantro macro, you know, web simulator thing you got. If I put in higher bond prices, higher bond yields, lower prices for fifty dollars in double jeopardy, what does that spit out for Kathy and ITB? They're both. They're both going to be under under immense pressure. And the thing is, look at, and so I said they're, they've been the same trade directionally since October. Since October, housing stocks are up 20% and Kathy Wood's up nothing. So what is that? That's the 30% difference in fundamentals. Right. Right? Housing stocks fundamentals are great. The other, ARC has no fundamentals, effectively. So, or you can look at Microsoft and ITB, which directionally, you know, just using Microsoft as, a, as a, just a poster growth stock or, you know, whatever you want to call it. But that stock's rallied because it's got good fundamentals. You know, forget about where it's going. And I'm, I'm not trying to make a comment on Microsoft, but Microsoft is not ARC. And, and so, again, a massive divergence based off fundamentals. So real simply, the pattern is you buy housing stocks when the Fed is done, and that's a trade. If we're heading to recession, it is a new bull market in housing stocks if, if it's a soft landing. So, again, I think housing stocks are a great barometer of what the market is pricing in for the odds of a soft landing right now it's saying the odds are pretty good um and so you buy housing stocks when the fed's done and when the economy bottoms so even if this is a short-term trade for the end of the fed and hope for a soft landing again if you're right on yields yeah that's done or if i'm right on jobs down the road that that trade's also done even when rates come back down when do you sell housing stocks two times when when rates rip and when claims rip We've had rates rip. Right now, the market's debating that, where it's going from here. Claims are not ripping yet. So housing stocks are hanging in there. So again, I think it, it kind of, that group is uniquely positioned to help us kind of understand what the market's thinking about the economic outlook. So Cantor, that's brilliant. I want to ask you a follow-up and I want Shrub, first Cantor and then Shrub, same question. So... And, and Cantra, you started to talk, I can't remember if it was in this space or when you dropped it on Friday, but it's great to, to hear from you again. Not too early to start thinking about 24. And also, just thinking, you triggered me when we talking about the housing stock. So if we're in a, so yeah, there's a cycle, but there's also, there's multiple things going on. There's a cycle, but there's also the regime shift coming out of the, the biggest anomaly with respect to liquidity, monetary policy, and interest rates in 5,000 years. And so if we say, okay, yeah, economy goes in recession, ceteris paribus, you know, rates come off, blah, blah, blah. That's true. But what's also true is, you know, we ain't, we, Dorothy, we ain't going back to, to Kansas anymore. No more 60 basis points on the 10-year for you. So let's just say in a world, and so let's say come out of all this, you know what? Inflation's four. I'm just making up a number. I, I just, I just want to frame the conversation, not give, you the, not give you the inputs. You can put whatever lipstick you want on this pig. But let's say we come out of this inflation, at, you know, three, four, not two. Not Weimar, three, four, maybe five. Who knows? Some number like that. So, yeah, rates come off cyclically for all the reasons you're alluding to. But, again, going back to history, rhyming up or repeating, 
we've got a step change function as we're coming out of this, you know, aberrational, you know, completely anomalous regime that we've been in. So that serves to militate against the decline in rates. And so that maybe the 10 year 350 is not such a great bargain. The rates maybe come off a little bit, but they don't come off all that much. And so most importantly, coming out of all this, you talk about cycles and reflating you so ably, you know, remind us what happened in the last cycles. If there isn't tons of more excess liquidity for the market coming out of this because of the inflation and there's limited scope for fiscal, I mean, talk to me about what an L-shaped future might look like and what it might portend for um, the market going forward because markets are forward looking. And so if we don't have, you know, if we're not looking forward to more reckless fiscal expansion or reckless monetary expansion, we could argue whether the market, you know, bottoms at 3,600 or 3,300 or whatever. But I want to get to the concept of time. And, and, and what does it look like the morning after? First, you can't throw and then shrub. Well, time, yeah, again, I, with what shrub was saying that, uh, yeah, I agree that things are going to be worse. The bad, you know, the worse we get into 2023, the worse the fundamentals are going to get. You know, wh- whatever we call it, a hard landing, a soft landing, a, a, a mild slowdown, whatever it is, you know, and this is the debate. But, you know, I think the positioning call is really about are we getting is the data going to continue to get worse not as much how how bad will the data get, but how long will it continue to get worse? So I agree with time. The problem with a soft landing, and you know, kind of talk about your the question you asked me in context of a soft landing versus a recession. The problem with the soft landing is, is you don't get rates down that much. You're not going to get much stimulus to help the economy rebound because it's only a soft landing, and you're not going to really create much creative destruction. So a lot of the crap that's in the in market right now in the, in the economy is just going to still be there. Uh, and that's going to be a drag, as it's been since the GFC, on on future uh, productivity gains and malinvestment and, and all that stuff. So that you know, the soft landing is not exactly. That's more of an L-shaped recovery, um, where we are inflation stays high, and eventually, eventually, I think that will cause a recession. It's just a longer landing, more than a soft landing, because until you crush employment, we're going to have high inflation for a while, uh, four or five percent. I agree. If we have a recession. Then you know you get more, you get more stimulus, you get a bounce in housing that's more material to help flow through the economy in 2024, and then you're quickly back to where you know being afraid about reflationary problems much faster. So, you know it could be a, a nice, nice sharp reflationary rebound in financial assets uh, and commodities, in particular in interest rates. But then we've got the same problem, you know, very quickly right in front of us, and that's that's going to be the unique backdrop compared to the last 15, 20 years, whereas we recovered sharply and didn't have a big tightening cycle right in front of us like we had in 2020, like we have today or had in 2021. So that that's, you know, I think it's going to be, a, again, a volatile period for equities. The simple way to say it, I think we're going to have really weak returns going forward for the next several years if inflation remains sticky because multiples are going to go down very early in a recovery. So even if earnings do pick up and especially if they pick up more as a function of pricing power than unit growth, investors are going to discount that via lower multiples. So you're not going to get every, you know, a dollar of earnings. It won't give you a dollar of returns. Uh, it won't be, you know, bank one for one. It'll be a fraction of that, which is kind of what we saw in the 2002 to 2007 period on steroids because commodities were, were the leading part of the economy basically. Um, and so, that's the kind of way you think about it. And then, and then the last thing I'll say is that that goes, I think it only reinforces the point you and I've talked about a lot about where do I go in growth? Where do I go in value? You stay away from the tails because we're not going back, hopefully, the last 15 years where junky long duration growth can just go up at any price. 
We're not going back to the 80s and 90s where you had the great moderation kick in that gave you a nice, great backdrop for risk on and deep value for a long period of time. The answer, I think, is somewhere in, in the middle. Uh, and so just good old fundamentals, which is which is good for active managers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cantor, don't you think we're also entering an age of gold, golden age for active management? A thousand percent. Yeah, I think the last 15 years have been the worst environment for active managers in probably history because, you know, in a growth market, those markets tend to be very cap heavy, biased and very narrow. And it's hard to beat the S&P when seven stocks, you know, are explaining half the returns. The easier market for active managers is one usually where smaller caps or basically breadth or equal cap is uh, beating large cap, which is what we had for much of the 80s and 90s. Um, so you know, I think we're going all the way back there, but somewhere in the middle. So definitely, yeah, definitely something better. And if we're going to have this very more cyclical market with more, more frequent pullbacks, then yeah, passive manage passive money is going to, I think going to get spooked out quite often. Hey, um, George, I, I've, I've got a follow up for no, no, no. And, Philip, if you don't mind, I want shrub to go and then you'll go after, after shrub. Uh, Philip, yeah, no problem. Yeah, shrub floor is yours. Yeah, uh, Cantor nailed it. I think, look, the key word is we should be expecting weak returns going forward. That is a key word because, again, here's how we think about it. What problem did we start with? What did we start with? We started with the most overvalued bubble of all times, not only in equities, but also in credit. Remember, we had $10 trillion of negative yielding debt. So we started with a big problem. That's how we start with. And a big problem takes a while to fix. That's why, again, it's going to be a pancake. <laughs> you know, some things are going to look like a pancake, just flat for years. And, you know, I mean, I was a portfolio manager in Europe. And frankly, Europe was like that for years after the GFC. And I think people should be prepared for Something similar. We started with something overvalued. There's still liquidity in the system. Unemployment is still very low, which delays the resolution of asset prices. So it's good that unemployment is low because, you know, we don't have social unrest and people have food on the table. But it also slows down the eventual resolution of fair asset prices. That's why, for example, there's a car company that on average, it's, I think I was, I was reading that it's a 10% position on average for U.S. retail investors. So that car company is a 10% position because these people have a job and they have a portfolio, which under, you know, under a deep recession, they wouldn't have a portfolio. So that thing is going to stay. It's going to take a while to resolve. And I think the less exciting the market becomes the more we drift down as we get rid of all these people that want excitement. And that's how it was in 2000 as well, if you remember. So as Shrub. the excitement fizzles out, yep. we, we come with a resolution in 20, 2002 that everything blows up. And at that point, we were saved by China as well, doing a, having a massive uh, stimulus. Whereas right now, we look at China and their... Uh, you know, earnings, uh, what is it? The price to uh, price to earnings of a house is like 50 times or as it should be 10. So that's not going to save us this time. So slow resolution, slow and painful. 
you know, we got to get used to it on the, on the active managers. I'm very excited. Um, I like, even now I, you know, just simple things, you know, the stuff trading at 10 times earnings and other things trading at 50 times earnings, the discrepancy is the biggest ever. So if people have some patience, um, then it's actually a pretty good way to make money in a sideways market, I think. Uh, Shrub, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it, it's a return of fundamentals. No more narrative-driven liquidity nonsense. Um, you know, I was I got to be careful what I say here. Shrub, I'm talking to you, man, so listen to me carefully. So if there was an ETF out there that would short uh, that car company that shall not be named, would, that be, would you tell that ETF manager he should cover that position or stay short? No, 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 no. Look, I have that discussion. I'm, I, I mean, I run a family office, and uh, I have a certain position that I defend the uh, uh with with uh <laughs> with hey shrub 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 i want to go back to a conversation you and i but I let me just tell you our... something else uh, let no. me just tell you something yeah. else, George. it's a position that i have personally Got that it. i am not touching and i and i force myself to not look at because it, it's it's so obvious <laughs> i know i know shrub, shrub i want to go back to uh, a conversation you and I had about six months. We were uncontrollably laughing. Remember the one I'm talking about? Like, of course, yeah. Okay, 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 okay. So that was spot on. So absolutely, you know, you know it's stage level all over again. Who's going to buy the bonds right here, Trump? Right here, right now. Well, look, that's the problem, and um, <laughs> the problem is that the U.S. is going to start. Uh, you know, they're going to issue another trillion dollars <laughs> for their fiscal plans. So, so that's why it becomes a very tough, uh, tough trade. Three and a half percent. The banks are not buying. I think the only thing that can save it a bit is if they, if they game, if the Fed and the Treasury game the system and give kind of incentives for the banks to buy Treasuries. That's the only thing that kind of bails it out. But otherwise, China's not buying. I mean, Russia's never going to buy again. Um, sure, interestingly, sure. by the way, just one thing actually yeah. that was very, very interesting to note: the Saudis so chief flew over to Saudi Arabia shook hands, shook hands, importantly, right? Remember, Biden did a fist bump. No, Chi actually shook hands with MBS. Um, and uh, they signed a deal to buy oil in yuan. So again, that limits demand for a dollar in treasuries. So, 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 so real quickly, uh, 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 consciousness, any thoughts? In, you're, 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 it's fine to say I have no strong views. I want to ask you about the dollar, gold, and oil. Okay, so dollar, I think it's topped out. I think we saw the highs for the cycle, but I think it's probably going to bounce from here if it makes sense. So I don't think we're going to see the, the highs again, but it probably like uh, oversold. That's one. Uh, oil, I think it's a surprising in some ways here. I'm not that surprised because I, I have my own conspiracy theory that uh, the Chinese have teamed up with OPEC for a reopening. Um, I'm not surprised, but oil should be look, for this cycle, 70 to 90, I think is the right price. So it's at the low end. Um, I haven't, I, I actually have some calls on uh, oil and gold. I am the lone uh, hunter that bought puts. I would never short gold outright. I think gold should do well, but I actually have put personally on gold because if it turns, if TLT turns, if the bonds turn, gold is, uh, it can get smashed if this turns. So on gold, I have a very strange position. 
I basically think gold is a structural long in many ways, but I actually I have puts because I think if, if one scenario plays out, I'm going to make a lot of money. If it makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Do you, do you think, by the way, I'm coming back on energy. So you think, say energy range 70, 90 on the commodity. What do you make of the energy stocks here, Shrub? Um, I think they're in a void still. Uh, I issued a warning uh, on a tweet a few weeks ago. I thought it, I thought they were very overbought. Um, I think certain segments are bottoming out. Maybe the you know the energy services are probably ener- uh, bottoming out. I think the equities themselves have a bit more to play out. Um, just to you know, it, it was it was uh, for a very simple reason, by the way, because they've done very well this year. It's a very easy source for people to just lock in some profits. Um, if you have a view, a five-year view, of course, you just keep them. Huh? So I'm I'm a short-term term, uh, I'm a short-term trader. So um, on a you know one-month view, I'll probably get a good entry, I guess. So I would be looking to buy soon, but uh, I'm kind of patient. Uh, yeah, the one thing I don't like about oil stocks, by the way, personally, yeah, is I don't like what happened in the UK, and I think what happened in the UK is going to be repeated in other parts of the world. They're just an the, easy source of funding yeah, for tax, the government. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure, I'm just coming on the oil. Last question on oil. How much of the uh, decline? I've read a lot of stuff. I'm sure it's the same thing you read. It's been just a lot of financial speculators, hedge fund guys, you know, liquidating longs. I think I saw the open interest a few days ago. It said it went down by like a hundred million barrels with weeks. So how much of it's fundamental weakness and how much of it's just uh, decline in demand for uh, paper oil? I think it's a lot of paper oil. I think it's very, one very simple reason why I wasn't involved in it uh, personally and why, I mean, I, I was telling people to get out the last few weeks. Um, it was a very obvious pe- uh, long for people. So what's the, why is it an obvious long? Uh, SPR finishing, uh, China reopening, so everyone was positioned for that event. And I think there was a lot of speculative money in this. So now it's, okay, so now this SPR is finished, but it's finished in a weakening economy. And China supposedly reopened, but it didn't really, right? So people have played a reopening, but it's not a real reopening. It's going to happen in three months or something. So, so that paper oil, I think, just got obliterated in reality. And whereas the real demand... And the real shortage is probably like six months away. Uh, and then we're going to have a real, I mean, you know, we, you've had many spaces on the topic. Structurally, forget about my short-term uh, nonsense. Structurally, I mean, there's a very, very big problem in the uh, oil space. I mean, toward, to, to the upside, to the upside, structurally. I mean, you know, I'm a structural bull on the oil, uh, on the oil side. I mean, that can get very ugly in the next few years. Right. So, um, by the way, I just want to set the record straight here, um, just so everyone's on the same page. And Shrub, you can probably speak to this, but like you, I've been a structural bull on oil. It was very positive the first half of the year. Um, I sent a tweet earlier this morning. It seems to have stirred up a hornet's nest, but this is, this is a little bit further. Afe- but Shrub, I, this is a serious question for you. Seriously, I, I want your help on this because, you know, Twitter, it's very easy to have a misunderstanding with people. Um, and you know, it's just, it's just got awful. I, mean, you... I think we, I think we lost George. Hey, uh, shrub. Oh, well, no, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. Oh, sorry. Sorry. That's sorry, all sorry. right. Sorry. sorry. So, so shrub shrub, you know, when you see a Twitter mob and when everyone's on one side, um, 
usually tactically, I'm not talking structurally, tactically, it's a good contrary indicator. You should go the other way. Um, and so I, I, I put a tweet out um, just, just commenting on how, you know, I think I was, I was focusing on um, uh, bet, so oil. The questions. And I was like, you know, when I was saying when people are, uh, uh, yeah, Shrub, can you guys hear me, by the way? Is this kind of messing up? Hello? Philip, can you hear me? Yeah, sounds good, George. No. Okay, sorry. Yeah, we, we can hear you. Okay, so to anybody on to anybody on stage, just clear up any misunderstanding. But it's also a useful tool, I believe. Whenever you see a Twitter mob, I would actually use Twitter mob as a substitute for market sentiment, and we, we know what we're talking about. Okay, whether people are too bulled up on energy, or they're too bulled up on crypto, or they're too bulled up on the bearish position. I'll raise my hand on that one. Right? It can be structurally right, but when it reaches a crescendo. When it becomes a huge mob and everyone's trying to outdo each other, I'm more bearish than you are, or, you know, or, you know, my price target to arc is lower than yours. Or you have guys saying oil's going to 100, 150, 200. Or you have crypto bros saying it's going to, Bitcoin's going to 100,000, 200,000. I'm not talking about over the long run. I'm talking about if you were to folks at any point in time where it just gets too crowded to one side, I usually view that as a pretty good trading tactical fade it go the other way type of suggestion and i see shrub left so i'm going to ask anyone else who's on stage whether it's cantro nikoski neely philip baron shrub i want to hear he's back i want shrub to answer this question shrub, shrub the use of when you see twitter mobs um does that does that speak to you when you see a twitter mob shrub yeah look i i think it's uh you know we have to be grateful to them because when they get too loud they pre they they usually present a great opportunity to go the other way <laughs> it's as simple as that. Um, unfortunately, you know, whether it's uh, ARC uh, fanboys or Tesla fanboys or oil, uh, it, it's the same thing. When people get too loud, it's usually, usually just a sign to get out. Yeah. yeah sure. you know, I, I, and, to any, and to anyone who's listening, that's all my comment was intended to make. It didn't, it didn't, wasn't anything more about, I hate oil. As a matter of fact, I'm very bullish on it longer term. It's just not here, right here, right now. So, People sometimes get but people sometimes get butt hurt when someone says something opposing their positions, but it was not meant personally, and it certainly wasn't meant strategically. So can, that's all. Can I, I make a very say. simple comment, uh, George? Um, yeah, go for it. Because you know, people ask me about the flows all the time. So it's it's very simple with the stock prices. It's actually a very simple job. When people get too loud about an investment, the reason why it works the other way is like you should ask yourself who's going to be the marginal buyer. So if the last guy on Twitter is bullish on oil. <laughs> Like, who's going to buy the oil position from him? You think it's going to be BlackRock, who has an ESG constraint for the next uh, 10 years? <laughs> so, so it's kind of kind of easy, actually. Yeah, no, that, well said. Philip, you wanted to, Philip, the floor is yours. Philip, please speak up. Thanks, George. Um, listen, I'll just make a comment on this, right? So, you know, someone I respect a lot, um, this was probably, I don't know, maybe six months ago, put on a pretty big position in Facebook around two two fifteen or something like that after it had come down from 300. And, you know, this is, this is a value investor, if you will, that, you know, had the, all the accolades of the, you know, profitability of Facebook, et cetera. And, and so, but I think what people miss, and this is something I learned from Stan and from, from your spaces, George, is when we're in a secular bear market, right? You cannot behave like Buffett, you know, Will Facebook rebound to $500 a share someday in the future? Perhaps, but you don't have the liquidity 
to put even a thousand shares into Facebook at 215. And what's Facebook at now? $150 a share or something, you know, in that range. And so I think people, you know, get caught up in, oh my God, it's down. And you talked about this earlier, George, right? It, you know, what's a stock that's down, uh, you know, 80% and another 50% fr from there, right? So, you know, the crowd mentality, I think people have to step back and look at the bigger picture. And I, I forget who said it before, but macro is moving a huge part of the market. And so if you're just looking at fundamentals, it might be a great company, you know, and that's why I'm looking at housing, trying to short them. But I, I just, I see massive downside. So my, my question for Shrub on flows and, and, and passive, right, specifically is, has anyone done work on what happens when we flip the calendar year? So you've got all your high net worth or, you know, frankly, people making even 100, 150 grand a year that are maxing out their 401ks that get maxed out, you know, perhaps in Q1 or early part of Q2. So they're not contributing to that passive for the back half of the year. And then it restarts January 1. So I'm just curious, could we see a bounce in equities because passive flows have a substantive, uh, you know, bounce in just in terms of the, uh, the magnitude. Yeah, I mean, uh, Michael Green, who's on the audience, I mean, he's the best guy to follow around this this topic. I just follow the weekly flows into asset class. And, you know, I've, last week was the seventh biggest outflow on record for Lipper data. So that's the kind of stuff I look at. But the 401ks, I think Michael Green would, would agree. I think I've listened to him on the topic. It's uh, unemployment <laughs> is what drives those flows lower at the end of the day or you know the boomers uh uh retiring uh which is another important point so you know I guess my, too, it's too big picture for me whereas i i just track weekly stuff yeah my running thesis is that most of those jobs at the high end right we're back to the inequality and the excess savings right most of those jobs at the high end are going to be retained or you know even if you got laid off from facebook you're going to go get another job those people will be out of work for you know, a month or two at, at most. And so you're going to have this you know, potentially bounce in the market, right? Um, and, and so if Mike Green's on, I'd love to hear any comments he might have on uh, just the magnitude of, of those flows at the beginning of the year. We're going to go to Cantro, but before Cantro speaks, I'm going to front run Cantro. I'm going to channel my inner Cantro. And that is, um, yeah, you know, you get, I think, what is 100? I remember seeing some nonsense somewhere along the way. Uh, over 100% of the net flows for the year come in the month of January. Okay, fine. So all things being equal, you expect the market to bounce. Hello, Captain Obvious. What I think is more interesting, though, is not is the market going to bounce, but what's going to bounce? And Cantor was saying earlier, like, I could see, okay, you get money come in. You don't know what's going to happen in the world. The world's a risky place, blah, blah, blah. So a la Cantro, you stay between the 30-yard lines. You buy reasonable companies, decent valuations, decent fundamentals, decent cash flows. No crazy stuff. No ARC. No home run ball would be bankrupt airline companies with Magumbo levered balance sheets, blah, 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 blah. And apropos of that, what I see finds really interesting is you look at the price action, as Kedra was saying earlier, the garbage is, and we can get Nikoski back in here, Roke has left, you know, it, it's below the 200-day moving average, and it's not moving. So you look at ARC, it's within a few percent of its, of, of, of its lows for the year. Tesla was like at a new low for the year a week ago. Oops, I shouldn't have said the name of the company. The crap. I mean, I can't imagine someone walking in. Shrub, don't laugh too hard. You got to say, keep yourself muted. Someone coming in on January 2nd and saying, oh, you know, it's a new year. Let's set the clock back to zero. I'm going to buy some AMC, some Carvana, and some Tesla. I mean, and some ARC. I just don't think it's going to work that way. 
I, I think if people, you know, the lesson shall be presented until learned. People learning about risk. If they got to put money to work, I think they're going to buy in real companies. All right, can't show floor is yours. Uh, I, I'd, I'd love if Mike Green can come up because I'm, I'm not as definitely familiar about the early seasonal flows in January coming from 401k. But, you know, the, not most people can't, and get, correct me if I'm wrong, but most people can't uh, fill up their whole annual uh, 401k uh, deposit uh, in, in, you know, in the first quarter of the year. You know, I'm, I'm assuming people that are doing that are only those that get sizable bonuses that are making a sizable salary that have the ability to do that, which is not most people. And even if, so let's just take those people that are doing that, are they going to put it all into equities, A, and B, are they going to put it all into passive funds, even if they do put into equities? And are and in the money, if not, where does that money go, treasuries or active managers in equities? And are active managers just going to dump it into the market or be more selective? And that's kind of goes to what George was saying, you know, what are you going to buy? I don't think I don't know too many active managers to I think it was Shrub who said this who have a lot of you know even coming into coming into the 2023 that really want to take on a massive amount of uh, amount of risk. Um, yeah, sure, there's people that are bullish, but that's definitely not the consensus. No, I, I can't show. I'll show. I, mean, this is, I agree with them. You want about real companies that you know strong cash flows, good balance sheet, don't did, aren't dependent on external you know capital, you know don't have earnings volatility. I mean, you don't want sex, drugs, and rock and roll in your portfolio. You want boring. And the other thing I too I would say, and, and and Michael Green's a friend, but honestly I got to say this flat out: those focusing on flows did not prevent you from getting run over in 2022. Flows is not the whole game. All right, it's a question of where it goes. If you kept looking at the flows, you would have stayed in the market the entire time and gotten destroyed in 2022. So I would not stand there worshiping at the altar of flows. Just say, oh, the money's going to come in January. The market's got to do well. I mean, how many times, Shrub, this is for you, have we seen a crappy January? All right. So I'm not saying it's going to be a crappy January. I will say this. I will say this. I think Archie-type, Tesla-type garbage is going to be very poorly in January. Shrub, Cantro, thoughts? Go ahead, Shrub. Shrub, we can't hear you. Shrub, we lost you in the matrix. Cantor, you want to speak up? Yeah, just be quick. So we've done a lot of studies on seasonality, whether it's January, fourth quarter, Santa Claus rally, or um, sell and may go away. And, you know, the data is all out there, and so everyone's pretty familiar with the aggregates look like. But if you parse that data by periods where – Earnings estimates are trending lower, which is the backdrop we have today, versus periods where earnings estimates are trending higher, which uh, is periods when the economy is reaccelerating. You get a stark difference. So basically, sell and may go away. Stocks go up when the economy is accelerating. Think of 2021. Think of 09. Think of 2016, uh, or any year where PMIs were going up from the low, you know, mid, high, middle, low 40s or high 50s. Um, so when the economy is accelerating, all that stuff kind of doesn't really work as well. And then periods where the economy is decelerating or earnings uh, are, are slowing, like we have today, you know, sell and may go away works even better. In other words, stocks rarely go up, even worse than the, you know, the, the overall averages. And, you know, the January effect, which is kind of like a small cap value effect, which has kind of gone away over the years. A lot of that had to do with... Um, like again, flows and stuff, but uh, and people kind of uh, have arbitraged that out to some extent. Um, 
that also again just doesn't play when you when you're in these more macro extreme environments these seasonal things tend not to happen i know you could say well look the market just rallied you know in in october and november i'm not so sure if you know sure some of that was seasonal and chasing markets and you know not not wanting to end the year behind the uh, the benchmark but let's also face it what happened in october were some massive things the uk problem went away the boj intervened we got some good cpi data finally so, you know, there were a lot of events that certainly uh, explain why the market's done what it's done the last two months. So I just be careful with seasonals when you're in such a um, powerful tail macro environment, which I, I think we're in right now. That's great. Hey, Shrub, are you still in the matrix? Are you guys speaking up again, Shrub? I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, yeah, we yeah. couldn't hear you. Sorry, we couldn't hear anything. Yeah, sorry. I'm having a, uh, sound issues. Um, look, I, I think it's to Cantor's point. If things go well, put, people put money. If things go bad, they take out the money. If things are not doing well, they're going to take out the money. <laughs> it's just that simple. Fair enough. All right, stay, everyone stay up there. I want to go to David and then Baron. David, good to see you. What's up, David? How's it going, George? Thank you for hosting this wonderful space. And I think uh, to Cantrell's point, considering uh, the guilt market and specifically quick interactions to go back to QE, specifically to support the pension outflows or pe uh, pension uh, guilt system in that sense, my big question would be, um, one, how much is the stock compensation uh, taxation report uh, coming into play within, let, let's say, the end of Q4 and the beginning of Q1, specifically in the ideas of a increased stock compensation outflow uh, in, this, in redemptions from these individuals. And then two, uh, considering that we have more ETF inflows, 500 billion uh, of inflows, despite like grim year, this was uh, from the uh, Financial Times. I think that it's conducive to a apathy that's been created within the pension, uh, or I should say passive investor in that sense, almost the Walter Deemer idea, very apathetic. And we haven't seen much, um, how can I say, understandings of like, let's say the wealth effect that's been created and the loss of wealth, especially if we're looking at the funds. Apologies for my lucid thoughts there. David, just coming back to the stock-based compensation, there are many angles to that to that topic. What specifically, what part of that, what's part, what, what, what nuance so this, stock-based compensation? This is out of ignorance, right? How much does uh, Q4 end of year play into uh, the taxations and how corporations uh, necessarily interact within their tax uh, and their accounting in the uh, uh, developments of stock compensation and why we see a disjunction between December and January, specifically the beginning of Q1? So I, I don't have any insight into that, maybe shrub or cancer do, but I'll just say one thing about stock-based compensation, period. And that is that's becoming and will continue to be an increasing uh, target of scrutiny uh, when you're looking at companies. Um, it's a perfect uh, reflexive Rube Goldbergian per perpetual money machine thing. When number go up, companies use it and abuse it. And now that number not go up, uh, the tide's going out, they're going to have a problem. So if you just do a simple screen of the worst offenders, and Jim Chandler's done a great job of this, Identifying companies where stock-based compensation is the highest percentage of revenue or income. It's mind-boggling. And I would talk, those companies have been doing horribly, and I suspect they're going to continue to do horribly. Uh, Shrub, do you have any thoughts on stock-based compensation? Yeah, actually, let's tie it up to the previous question because I have a more uh, solid answer now that we have the SBC topic on. So who's going to put money in the markets? So. I, I discussed the bad prints, you know, the what, what, what do you call it? The mark to myth of Blackstone. So if Blackstone real is, REIT is marked to myth, then the venture capital funds are marked to 
fraud almost, right? On a scale of marked to myth, venture capital is probably marked to fraud. So when those marks come out, because these are Cathy type stocks, and the venture capital funds have the real marks again when the auditors go through them in February, March, then Cathy type stocks could do very, very badly. So that's step one. Step two is these Cathy type stocks, they do rely on SBC to, to exist, to exist. And with a very simple example, say there's a 10 billion company that paid out a billion in compensation in SBC. Well, if that stock is down to a billion market cap, what's it going to do this year? You think it's going to issue 1 billion of stock? And what's going to happen to those employees? They're all down. So basically, this is a, this is a, a negative feedback loop sector. The Ponzi sector is a negative feedback loop sector. So it all comes up together. And this is a grind to zero for these stocks. It, actually, these stocks is not going to be a grind to zero. This could be a fast zero. So that's why uh, the SBC, with stock prices low, they accelerate the, de the demise of the company. I mean, you're going to see companies like Carvana going to Chapter 11, uh, which otherwise it could have just printed more stock for uh, creditors and employees. So I'd be very, very, very careful with that and also with people calling lows in uh, Ponzi-type stocks. So, so Shrub, you just talked about Carvana filing Chapter 11. So let's just talk for 30 seconds about the second order effects of that happening. Like, how many cars does Carvana own? And by the way, they've been buying them at a premium for the entire year. When, when, that, when those used cars hit the Manaheim circuit and used car cr prices crash, it's going to take down new car prices as well. You couple yeah, that with housing. Because CPI, no, but man, CPI is going to come down and that's bullish, isn't it? <laughs> well, so listen, you can have. I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but you, 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 you get it. I, I just, the constellation but of this things is, but let's stay on this that are happening. It's a, very, it's a very important point because this is how people are going to get destroyed next year. You have a market that is bad, the car market, right? The used car market. So they're going to see, and seeing used car prices go down is very bearish for the sector. But the monkeys, let's go with the monkeys analogy. They're going to see the CPI come down. They're going to plug it in their models, and they're going to be dancing on CNBC that CPI went down from 5 to 4 because the Mannheim index collapsed, which actually is kind of bearish. <laughs> But this, yeah. you know, the market could be up 5% on that day. <laughs> so. Yep, yep. So, hey, the, the other piece of anecdotal inference, uh, info I'll share with you guys. Um, so I live in a, in a mid-tier city in, in New York. Um, a buddy of mine's friend owns the largest to towing company, and he does only repossessions for three of the big mid-tier cities in New York. He's up over 300%. He can't repossess enough cars because he doesn't have enough drivers. So just think about that for a minute. He's up 300% on repossessions. No one's talking about that. Look at the used car yeah, so financing Phil, market Phil, and the Phil, delinquencies. Phil, 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 if I interrupt you. Um, we tweeted about that months ago. I urge everyone. There's a guy I think is lucky 
Lucky Leo. I can't remember his name. There's a guy. In the, I'll retweet it. I tweeted about this six months ago. Yeah, 100%, George. Yeah, okay. Okay, and he tweeted about this. He drove around showing all the lots, telling people what was going to happen. This was like back in July. So it's all there. It's happening. It's happening. And used car prices, you know, in November, down 14% in one month. I think it's the biggest one-month decline ever. No surprise there. They're going a lot lower. A lot lower. Plus, you know what he's talking about? I'm going to pour gasoline on that fire. No pun intended. You look, and I'll retweet some of this stuff. The, the the size of the average payment now on a car oh my god a guy's paying like you know a thousand fifteen hundred bucks for an f-150 truck you know with ten thousand down I and mean, this is complete insanity complete insanity and then you allied to that the fact that uh you're getting bottlenecks uh become uh being resolved used car production new car production sorry which has been constrained for the last years for all the reasons we know is starting to pick up and so you're going to see the whole market flip upside down with used car prices tanking. Uh, and so, no, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Excellent point, Philip. Um, all right, I want to go to Stephen. Dave, do you have a quick follow-up then to Stephen? David, keep it quick, and then we're going to do Stephen. Very quickly, considering that Carvana is a, a good case study and representing a, a company that's held by majority of ETFs and other index uh, funds, how is it um, uh, dangerous for these indexes holding certain companies like Carvana, just using Carvana as this illustrative uh, uh, bad company with bad capitalization that could be a, a illustration of other companies in these indexes, and leaning on Michael Green's uh, work, essentially, uh, how competitive is the uh, stock market? This is Valentin Haddad's one of his uh, references in the sense that the passive inflows creates a consolidative nature to volatility. And I think La Shrub brings up a very interesting idea that we haven't seen max volatility. And in this idea, sorry for uh, making it this longer than it needed to be, uh, but the inflows of these indexes in consideration to c consolidation of volatility is at play. Would you agree with this idea? I'm sorry, Dave. What's the question? Would you uh, the idea would be would you agree that the the inflows of passive uh, capital is consolidating volatility and we haven't seen true volatility within the market? One hundred percent, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. And that's gonna the the top's gonna come off that one. Uh, Dave, you want to answer that, Dave Bukowski? Um Well, I, I mean, I can speak from personal experience. You know, probably four years ago, I went into an account that was all RIAs and only trade ETFs. And I said, at some point, this will unwind. You know, everyone's owning the large cap stocks. and But, you know, it doesn't mean that all passive, you know, ETF structures will be negated. And, and that is, you know, like, if you looked at, like, something like coal, you know, the ETF ended in, you know, the middle of, uh, you know, the, the 19, you know, or 2020. I mean, that would have probably been the hottest ETF if they didn't close it. So, you know, I, I agree with that assessment completely. I think this whole, you know, view of passive investing is migrating to the active manager. And I, I think everyone in here has, you know, denoted that, um, that, you know, the, the days of passive investing and buying an index uh, is over. I mean, the Dow would be at new highs if we didn't, you know, take out ExxonMobil and add CRM. And then we'd be talking about a bull market in the industrials when the very index industrials doesn't contain industrials anymore. You know, they, they didn't want the index to die in the back room of, you know, Dow. Uh, and so they migrated to a new path where they said, Hey, tech is the leadership. Right. Um, so, you know, look at histories over time and, you know, 
studying the S&P 500 from, you know, the 2000 bubble to now, I think there's less than 50% of the constituents still in there. It's an actively managed index. So keep that in mind. Just some forethought. Thanks for that. Steven, you've been waiting patiently. Floor is yours. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I just wanted to mention that there's been a lot of talk around equities um, without, I think, a real recognition that the dynamic between equities and bonds has changed a lot. If you go back a few years, you know, bonds were really giving you 10 to 20 percent of sort of long term expected returns. If you expect equity returns, you know, a couple of years, people are saying like 8 percent. Right. No one who manages money is really a large portfolio of money is expecting higher than that. So now we're in this new regime where instead of, you know, low risk bonds giving you 10 to 20 percent of that return, you're getting more like half maybe up to like 75%, depending on how much additional credit risk you want to get. So I think more and more private U.S. investors are just going to keep flowing into these safe assets because they get you close to your return, so why not? And it also helps uh, like the U.S. sort of fund its deficit, right? If you sort of look at the old buyers of debt, China, Japan, Europe, those guys are starting to go away or have gone away. There's no more QE. Banks don't want to buy treasury because they can actually lend now. So someone needs to buy. So, you know, I think if broadly, if equities keep going up, it just gives the, the Fed more room to to raise interest rates. And it's still taking time for the market to really crystallize the fact that bonds are getting people close to their targeted returns. So I don't know if anyone has a different view on that, but I see if equities keep going up, it just means that there's more room to keep raising rates. 100%, 100%, Stephen. Um, and, and it was a bit, it was talked in various, and this, by the way, this, this, this conversation now, you know, it's funny. This went on for four hours. I look at this room. It's just been outstanding. Some of you are gluttons for punishment. You've been here for well, the whole while. We're going to wrap this up pretty soon. I got to have a life. I got things I got to do. But, you know, I was informed. I was told months back, run shorter rooms too long. But the community here is just unbelievable. I mean, the amount of wisdom here. It's, I've learned so much, and uh, I hope you have as well. So, I know we spoke about this earlier, the fact that really foam the runways and, you know, individuals, yes, the lower end of socioeconomic strata are having a hard time, but not at the, at the high end. The ability to service their debt obligations is extremely high. Company balance sheets are in relatively good shape. I think most people, most observers would have thought at the beginning of the year when, uh, you know, a year ago, uh, the, the, the tenure was, I think, one and a quarter, one and a half, that if rates went to two or two and a half, the world would blow up. Well, here we are at 350, having been as high as four and a quarter, and the world didn't blow up. And so as Shrub was talking about, as Cantor was talking about, um, it may be that, you know, it takes a while for the, for, for the roof to really fall in, that maybe the first half of the, of the year, the economy doesn't go to pieces. It may not be until the second half of the year. So, no, there's scope for there's scope for uh, rates to go up. I couldn't agree with you more. The Urs, I want, so I want uh, Urs, Urs, um, you were in a space we had, I remember, a few months ago, and I think you were the senior ranking uh, member of this space. And I remember your comments about what it was like going way back in the day when you were a young man starting your career and what a bar market was really like. So, Urs, I don't know if there's something in particular in this space, a topic you wish to speak about or you want to just bring your perspective of what it was like in a real bear market. But I'm really, really delighted that you've uh were willing to come up on stage and speak so Urs, if you'd uh if you'd like to unmute yourself and please speak we'd love to hear from you Urs. Urs, the floor is yours yeah thank you so much i uh, really appreciate the space it's a fantastic uh, venue 
So I started in the business on April 2nd, 1973. And the thing that I remember the most, and I think, you know, one of the things that people might just not really understand is that the bear market was one thing, because if it's going down, you know that things, you, you know, they are going down. There's no reason to buy, but it was very painful the way it went down. And then I remember, I actually remember where I sat when I was in Switzerland still, when the market turned in December 1974. And it was an article that I read about Edson Gould that was saying 1975 is going to be a great year because there was never a bear market that ended in the five. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, anyway, the market went straight up into 76 and made the top, I think, in 77. But what happened then after that was just agonizing because if you go back in history and you look at the chart going back from 1978 to 1982, it was just essentially going sideways, up and down, no real traction with anything. And, you know, you had these big sell-offs in October, I remember. And, and, and it was just, it was just totally frustrating. And the other thing that I remember is that there was nobody that could mentor you in terms of how the bull market was, because the people that were in the markets before that, so between 1966, the market made a high in February 9, 1966. But the problem was that the market then, <laughs> it went sideways and you made a low, I think, in 90, in, in 68, in 70, and then 74. But they also had a very bad experience. And because of that experience, everybody was kind of like so frustrated. And... <laughs> The thing that I just can pass on to you is it's one thing we are, we are just so accustomed to the market going up. And I think what is really missing is the frustration factor that the market just might go sideways for a prolonged period of time and do nothing and just frustrate the hell out of everybody. And, and it's just... It moves away from the front page and it, nobody cares. Maybe that's a little different now because you have so many people that are in the market. But I remember at that time, you know, nobody really was in the market to speak of. I mean, the public was not there. I remember I suggested in a in a conference to one of the guys that were running the Swiss TV station that maybe, you know, would be helpful to report what the market was doing. And they were laughing at me and saying, you know, nobody cares. You know, people want to know what the weather is doing and they want to know what sports team is winning and that kind of stuff. So it's just it's just something that came to mind. And when I was listening to the space last week, the thing that really stuck out to me is between what's happening with the pension plans in England and what's happening with inflation so that you are between a rock and a hard place and you have to accommodate whatever really makes the situation worse. That reminds me so much of Arthur Burns in the 70s, you know, when you had that stop and go policy. And if you go back and see what the market was doing between the time Arthur Burns was in charge of the Fed, you will see that the market essentially went sideways from the time he started and the time he left. So that's all I have to, to share right now. So, Urs, um, 
I'm really intrigued by your comments, particularly the part about time. I mean, is uh, Joel? Sorry, Ors. Sorry, Ors. I, I I muted myself by accident. So um, I'm really intrigued by your comments, and obviously trying to make predictions is a very difficult business. But what I'm really curious about is not so much what you think the marks will do, you know, this week, this month, but the bigger picture. And I want Shrub to weigh in on this as well, and Nikoski. Uh, but for you first, Urs, the idea of time, that when you have such a big bubble like this, the bigger the bubble, the longer it takes to work out. And, you know, I'm a sumo kalati graduate of the Japanese uh, bull market. Um, I ran an aggressive international stock fund in the 80s. And the remarkable thing about Japan isn't that it went down 80%. The Nikkei peaked at 39,000 and change in the last day of 89. It fell to seven. But here we are... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's 2022, 33 years later, and the Nikkei is only at 27,000. And as someone has said, time kills more people than price. So what I'm more curious about Urs, is not so much a short-term forecast, nobody knows, but in terms of lessons for you from you from the past, having seen a big bear market, a big bull market, how many long it takes years to, it takes to repair itself? And you said you'd see the market, see the market going sideways for quite a long time now. I mean, what that says to me is the types of stocks that are going to do well, all this momentum crap, which depends on, you know, ever falling interest rates and increasing liquidity, like that's not going to work. But just grinding people down in a bear market. I mean, what was the what was the uh, uh, the psyche like of people? What was the mentality of investors back then? And and what do you think, it, if you had to draw from that experience, what do you think the next few years are going to look like? Well, <laughs> I cannot even imagine. I mean, I remember the event with Japan in as it made the high in end of December 1989 and I cannot even remember I mean I cannot even imagine a bear market like that from Japan but it's just incredible but you know the big difference probably was in 1982 when the market took off the PE ratio price to sales all of these kind of things we are so much lower than we can even imagine right now because, you know, and then, of course, interest rates were way higher. I was trading uh, bonds on the floor of the Zurich Stock Exchange in that time, and that was an experience by itself because I experienced the big bear market and then the tremendous bull market that came after the Fed turned, and that, that was just an incredible experience in terms of how desperate people can get and that you cannot sell bonds at all. And they had to kind of like, you know, stop trading because the bonds fell that much on a percentage basis, on a daily basis, that they could not open for trading unless they were you know, recovering a bit. And on the other way, when the market went up, just how how different it was in terms of the anxiety on the floor of, of how people were trading. The thing that really stands out to me, though, is that now you have so many more participants in the market and, you know, it became much more that people are involved in so many levels. And, you know, day trading at that time was just simply impossible because the commissions just wouldn't allow anything like that. I mean, you just couldn't pay for that and you didn't have the infrastructure. I mean, that was just not possible to do. So... I think the concept of time that, you know, you, you are just being stuck and there's just nothing to do. 
that is the one thing that is just so ingrained in me that how painful it was in terms of no traction. And now, when I look at what happened in the last, you know, decades that I have been around here in the States, it became such a different situation in terms of, you know, technology stocks and how far the market can go up and just how how much excitement can go into the market. And at that time, yes. Yes. there or, was just or, nobody there. Yes, or stay with that, stay with that. The fact that you had the technology, the social media, the gamification with the stock market, the incredible amounts of leverage. I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm, a, I'm obviously, I don't mean to bias you, but just the way I look. I listen to you and I say to myself, look how much worse it's this time. The valuations are far more extreme. Mikoski, you're the market historian. Shrub, you got to speak up too. Look at how more extreme the valuations are, the level of public participation, the gamification of the stock market, the leverage of social media. To me, I mean, isn't this a lot worse, worse than we saw um, than the environment you're talking about in the 70s? Well, it's much worse because so many people are involved. You know, when I was growing up and talking to my parents about stocks, that was just, I mean, you know, they came from the depression area. That was just not even an argument. I mean, stocks were for very rich people, you know, and the the public was just not involved to the extent that they were involved or are involved now. And you don't have that uh, kind of like, um, you know, appetite that you see now to go back into the market when the market starts to pop. It was just very, very different in terms of of how the market behaved. And I think the one big difference also compared to now is that you had an entire generation that already was getting slaughtered the time before. So, you know, from 1966 to 1973, you already had seven years of non-performing or or just going sideways. You know, whenever the market went up to a thousand, they got hit over the head. And then they, you know, they sold them off again. And then they came up again and they sold them off again. In 1973, I think the high in the Dow was 1,067. And it looked like, you know, the market might go higher. What do you know? I mean, the market just turned around and went straight down. And by the way, that also was during the time of the great um, energy crisis. And I remember in Switzerland, I think once a month, there was no traffic allowed on the highways. I mean, everybody that had a car was not allowed to use the car. I think it was on a Sunday, except for emergency vehicles, you know, fire engine, police, you know, EMS, that kind of stuff. But I was walking with my girlfriend. Her name was Monica. I still remember that. We were walking from my city to the next bigger city on the highway because nobody was allowed to drive the car anymore. It was just... Just a, a very different ballgame. So Neely or Cantra, you had a question or follow-up on that? I just had like a urs that that was beautiful. And just something I've been contemplating is I think a lot of people don't realize when they look at those prior charts. Remember, I was talking about like the rigor, right, of looking at prior charts and what's actually in them, et cetera. You know, the 401k didn't even exist prior to 1978. <laughs> it didn't have mass adoption, right, until you got well into the 80s. Um, and really it didn't get wider adoption until you get into kind of the aughts. And so to the point that he's making around, you know, it's 
worse because there's more people affected. I think about this all the time when we look at these charts. So I really appreciated that. Thank you. Or you need to come in these space. We're going to a space just with you because you're just such a wealth of information. The world you're describing is so different from an alien to what we're what we're dealing with right now and i think it's so instructive so much can be learned from that uh Cantor, i think you had a want to say something or a shrub or uh Nikoski, any any thoughts comments or actions to Urs? <sighs> okay so or just stay right there uh let's go to gilberto gilberto good to see you my friend what's up please unmute yourself good to see you george you know i've been hearing this uh, delightful conversation while I was reflecting on, I think, three of the most important points I have heard today. First, the weakness in the banking sector in the footstep of this new FMC meeting and the CPI report, coinciding with the weakness in the prices of the used cars and houses, which, of course, depress the balance sheet of the clientele of banks by the day, which of course put pressure in the valuations of the shares of those banks because the credit worthiness of the cohort of their clientele is suffering from what could be uh, even higher cost of the, their debt. So I would like to point to 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 point the conversation forward what Cantro was saying about the house uh, the real estate market and Philip about the falling and the crashing of the used cars which of course what I want the conversation to to go through or to guide us is to reflect on how the collateral of the balance sheet of the bank's clientele is really getting awful toward 2023 and sure you say something that i really want uh, you to to elaborate if you can of course is that next year in the 2023 gilberto we lost you go ahead yeah go, yeah, go ahead go, go ahead go ahead so just to resume the the negative feedback loop that is happening in the balance sheet of the clientele of the banks as each day the prices of the assets they hold, which is, of course, mostly houses and cars, are worsening the the, pro, the liquidity profile of the banking system and how that connects to what was early being discussed, the weakness in the KRE, Regional Banking ETF. Yeah, look, I don't think we have a banking crisis, so it's not like, oh, wait. I think what we have is different. We have a uh, crisis of trust, if you want to call it. Because, you know, the private bank, if you're a private bank client, okay, let, let's just do the example. So you have a private client, um, private, private bank client, say he has 100 million in the bank and he had 50 million with a discretionary mandate of the bank. And out of that, uh, they put 10 million in equities is down 20, 30%, 10 million in this uh, Blackstone REIT, and he thought it was up 7%. So what I'm saying is, regardless of his portfolio, the bank is fine. So that's why I you have to distinguish that uh, this is not a banking crisis. It's a crisis of confidence that uh, on the mark to myth. 
So if he thinks he's up 7% on the Blackstone portfolio and the bank, and he suddenly realizes he, that he can't take the money out and then he starts questioning whether he's up 7%, then obviously he's going to question his venture capital fund, his Tiger, Tiger Venture Capital Fund, his other venture capital fund, his private equity fund, so all these things. And then he's going to start asking for liquidity. But it also has a big wealth effect for him because he thought he was worth 100 million and suddenly he thinks... He realizes he's not worth 100 million. Maybe he's worth 50. And maybe his liquidity is not 50 and it's 10 or nothing. So that's why I'm, I, I think there's a very big problem that is, has yet to come as people uh, don't have to see what their wealth is on a real mark to market. And it's a very important point that's not really discussed because if you ask any family office now, what's your assets, I bet you they would not know what their assets are truly worth right now or a private client. Of course, the hedge fund is going to know what it, what their NAV is, but a private person that has all these funds or a family of this, I bet you their NAV is going to be wrong and they will find out their true NAV a few months down the line. Thanks for that. Gilberto, did that answer the question? Did you have another question, Gilberto? Uh, well, yeah. The other question I, I would like to pose to the to the community is: Michael Howell has been posting uh, these recent liquidity injections that it's been expressing in China for one side, but in the United States as a lower than expected QT unfolding, as less than expected Treasury has been left to roll over. If, for example, next CPI goes in range with expectations and the market rips, how you think will the intention of the refinancing, because let, let's remember, framing the U.S. economy as economy of refinancing of debt, it's, it's the debt has to be refinanced as it's go it's maturing and it's really hard to keep this refinancing if rates stay high so is there any plausible uh, not not crash of the equities if next cpi goes in 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 range with what is what is the the liquidity slow uh, the, the slow pace of the liquidity shrinking of the balance sheet of the Fed. Yeah, Gilberto. So I'll, I'll answer that just because I spent a lot of time talking with Michael. And uh, I mean, the gist of it is, you know, they've been draining liquidity. They've been, they've been, it's, if you, it's only for the first time on a year on year basis has the Fed balance sheet gone negative only recently. The pace of um, QT is, is supposed to continue at 95 billion a month. In recent months, however, that's been somewhat offset, if not more than offset, by uh, declining the TGA account and also the reverse repo. I don't want to get too much into the monetary mechanics because I get a headache and also don't fully understand it. The net of the whole thing is liquidity all in when you, when you consider the balance sheet, the reserve repo, and the TGA account. It's been an ad injection of liquidity, not decline. Uh, this was not as expected. It caught Michael by surprise. He spoke about this, as you rightly point out, in the space just the other day. Um, the TGA account is supposed to go down to 
700 billion by the end of the year. I think it's like four something right now. Who knows if they're going to do it? I mean, they fake left, they go right. There's also a suggestion that, you know, that money can be used to fund the government if there's a budget stalemate, blah, blah, blah. But the point of it is, as Michael points out, and here's the key thing, when liquidity, when the balance sheet's shrinking, when total Fed injections are, are going down, when he's being withdrawn, the market goes down. Then you get these sideways movements, like a stair-step function. It goes sideways for a while. And when that happens, the market goes sideways or even bounces. So we've been in this period now, the last couple of months, which actually gone up. It's supposed to go down. So who knows? I mean, I don't. Tr- I trust these guys as far as I can throw them. Trust but verify. Um, that's why. Go to the name. Go to the top of the of the page. Name of the room. The Fed talks the talk, and they walk the walk. So far, they're not really walking the walk. Thanks for the question, Gilberto. I want to move on because I want to kind of bring this room, um, uh, bring this room to a close. Uh, we've been going on for four hours and twenty minutes now, and we're going to go to my friend. We got two speakers left. We've got Michael. And then we're going to go to uh, 90s uh, random consultant. Michael, the floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Michael, can you hear me? Please unmute yourself. Okay. Sure. 90s... Oh, come on. Yeah, go for uh, it. Um, I just love these spaces, George. I can't thank you enough. Um, I thought the Michael Howell thing was absolutely brilliant the other day. And um, it, it's a very interesting conundrum we're now at. Um, you know, I read the book, this Bernard Brook book, uh, um, My Own Story, and it was fascinating. And one thing that he kept saying in his book was that the breaking of the continuity of bullish thought. And I think it's very interesting and very telling that ARC didn't make a comeback. And, you know, that you would expect it to blow up like with the rest of the stuff, you know, in this latest, what I call a bear market rally. Um, but I don't think liquidity is going to work. It didn't really work in 2007. It was a ground game, Main Street situation. For example, I spoke to mortgage brokers. The mortgage mortgage market is frozen right now. Um, as the gentleman mentioned, the repos in autos is up 300%. Uh, there is stuck unicorns. Um, it's going to be very interesting. It's like Godzilla versus Martha. But he made a very compelling argument. I don't agree with him, but he made me think. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Thanks for that, Michael. Um, okay, 90s Random Consultant, um, I'm going to recognize you. I know you were messaging me about increase, increasing yields. Um, what's your question, please? 90s? My, my, my question is this. One of the things that I saw just the other day, and my grandfather's been sleepy for a couple of years on these, is all of a sudden he gave a call and said, hey, I found a 5% CD for 12 months on the Gulf Coast. And he was a little surprised to see that number. Uh, it was kind of a special, but still it was something surprising. And one of the things I dug into was I can't understand whether or not they're trying to pull that liquidity into some of these smaller credit unions and banks in the Gulf Coast because they need it or it's because they see that there's this liquidity squeeze coming and they need to have that liquidity as the market progresses downwards. But I wanted to throw that out there to see why all of a sudden has this this push been going up in some of these smaller places if they don't need the liquidity. It's odd for them to pay that much if they don't need it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Cantro, Shrub, any thoughts? 
I'll have to think about that nineties. I, I don't have an answer for you. Yeah, it was just really weird, and I want to throw it in the room because it's it's making me wonder if a small banker credit union on the Gulf Coast is willing to pay that much in yield. Why? Why are they doing that if they don't need the liquidity? Nineties, <laughs> you you've been around long enough to know. I suspect it's the case. When things are not obvious, they're not obvious for a reason. Somebody needs some money somewhere. It's kind of funny, given that we've gone through an era the last few years where there was free money for anybody. So kind of makes you wondering. Maybe you're onto something here. All right. Before we close this room, I'm going to make my usual impassioned plea um, to please everyone give generously to World Central Kitchen if you've got, gotten value from this space. Four hours and 20 minutes. Cantro, Shrub. Neely, Nikoski, Roke. I mean, so many of you. I can't remember. I can't keep track. Uh, you know, I try to keep these things under two hours, but we're four hours and 20 minutes. You guys made me do it. You're obviously not sticking around because this is a waste of time. So I'm inclined to believe that you have gotten value from this room. So, um, you know, we've started again to pass the hat for World Central Kitchen. We're almost up to 230,000. We were at 220 like a week or two ago. Uh, I want to get us to 300 before the end of the year. This is the giving season. There are a lot of folks there in the Ukraine who are in a horrible situation. Chef Andreas is truly doing God's work. Um, it's incumbent upon all of us to uh, give generously. Some of us in the room, uh, I'm not going to mention names. I don't want to embarrass them, but have given quite a lot of money. Uh, some of them are on stage right now. Um, and so, you know, we're, so this, we have a first world high class problem here trying to preserve and increase our net worth. Um, the least we can do is uh, give to those who are in real need. So, I mean, honestly, the, the advice you're getting here is, is is priceless. Institutions pay tens, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars for this advice. You're all getting it for free. I do this for no personal gain, as do those who give generously of their time on stage right now. So I'm going to uh, retweet out the link to um, World Central Kitchen. I'd ask everyone to please, please give generously. Um, there are people out there who really need, who are really in a world of hurt and, uh, and, and need our help with that. Um, so again, I'm going to tweet that momentarily with that. Um, uh, we, our next room is tomorrow. We have Barry Ritholz. I think it's at four or four thirty uh, Eastern. Um, people have been saying we need to have more bulls in the room. Okay. So there, there's a bull. Um, and so, um, I, I look forward to, to, um, here, I just retweeted it. I look forward to, to, to each of you um, joining us again tomorrow. Again, please give generously to the World Central Kitchen. Stay safe, and uh, we'll see you until next time. Good night. Good, good day, everyone. Have a good weekend.